Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. The Doctor's Dilemma by Bernard Shaw On the June 15, 1903, in the early forenoon, a medical student, surnamed Redpenny, Christian name unknown and of no importance, sits at work in a doctor's consulting room. He devils for the doctor by answering his letters, acting as his domestic laboratory assistant, and making himself indispensable generally, in return for unspecified advantages involved by intimate intercourse with the leader of his profession, and amounting to an informal apprenticeship and a temporary affiliation. Redpenny is not proud, and will do anything he is asked without reservation of his personal dignity if he is asked in a fellow-creaturely way. He is a wide-open-eyed, ready, credulous, friendly, hasty youth, with his hair and clothes in reluctant transition from the untidy boy to the tidy doctor. Redpenny is interrupted by the entrance of an old serving woman who has never known the cares, the preoccupations, the responsibilities, jealousies, and anxieties of personal beauty. She has the complexion of a never-washed gypsy, incurable by any detergent, and she has, not a regular beard and mustaches, which could at least be trimmed and waxed into a masculine presentableness, but a whole crop of small beards and mustaches, mostly springing from moles all over her face. She carries a duster and toddles about meddlesomely, spying out dust so diligently that whilst she is flicking off one speck she is already looking elsewhere for another. In conversation she has the same trick, hardly ever looking at the person she is addressing except when she is excited. She has only one manner, and that is the manner of an old family nurse to a child just after it has learned to walk she has used her ugliness to secure indulgences unattainable by Cleopatra or fair Rosamund, and has the further great advantage over them that age increases her qualification instead of impairing it. Being an industrious, agreeable, and popular old soul, she is a walking sermon on the vanity of feminine prettiness. Just as Redpenny has no discovered Christian name, she has no discovered surname, and is known throughout the doctor's quarter between Cavendish Square and the Marrowbone Road simply as Emmy. The consulting room has two windows looking on Queen and Street. Between the two is a marble-top console, with haunched gilt legs ending in sphinx claws. The huge pier glass which surmounts it is mostly disabled from reflection by elaborate painting on its surface of palms, ferns, lilies, tulips, and sunflowers. The adjoining wall contains the fireplace, with two armchairs before it. As we happen to face the corner we see nothing of the other two walls. On the right of the fireplace, or rather on the right of any person facing the fireplace, is the door. On its left is the writing table at which Redpenny sits. It is an untidy table with a microscope, several test tubes, and a spirit lamp standing up through its litter of papers. There is a couch in the middle of the room, at right angles to the console, and parallel to the fireplace. A chair stands between the couch and the windowed wall. The windows have green Venetian blinds and rep curtains, and there is a gasolier, but it is a convert to electric lighting. The wallpaper and carpets are mostly green, coeval with the gasolier and the Venetian blinds. The house, in fact, was so well furnished in the middle of the 6th century that it stands unaltered to this day and is still quite presentable. Emmy, entering and immediately beginning to dust the couch, there's a lady bothering me to see the doctor. Redpenny, 
distracted by the interruption, well, she can't see the doctor. Look here, what's the use of telling you that the doctor can't take any new patients, when the moment a knock comes to the door, and you bounce to ask whether he can see somebody? Emmy. Who asked you whether he could see somebody? Red Penny. You did. Emmy. I said there's a lady bothering me to see the doctor. That isn't asking. It's telling. Red Penny. Well, is the lady bothering you any reason for you to come bothering me when I'm busy? Emmy. Have you seen the papers? Red Penny. No. Emmy. Not seen the birthday honors? Red Penny, beginning to swear, what the? Emmy. Now, now, ducky. Red Penny. What do you suppose I care about the birthday honors? Get out of this with your chattering. Dr. Ridgeon will be down before I have these letters ready. Get out. Emmy. Dr. Ridgeon won't never be down anymore, young man. She detects dust on the console and is down on it immediately. Red Penny, jumping up and following her. What? Emmy. He's been made a knight. Mind you don't go dr ridgening him in them letters. Sir Colenso Ridgen is to be his name now. Red Penny. I'm jolly glad. Emmy. I never was so taken aback. I always thought his great discoveries was fudge, let alone the mess of them, with his drops of blood and tubes full of Maltese fever and the like. Now he'll have a rare laugh at me. Red Penny. Serve you right. It was like your cheek to talk to him about science. He returns to his table and resumes his writing. Emmy. Oh, I don't think much of science, and neither will you when you've lived as long with it as I have. What's on my mind is answering the door. Old Sir Patrick Cullen has been here already and left first congratulations, hadn't time to come up on his way to the hospital, but was determined to be first, coming back, he said. All the rest will be here too, the knocker will be going all day. What I'm afraid of is that the doctor want a footman like all the rest, now that he's Sir Colenso. Mind, don't you go putting him up to it, ducky, for he'll never have any comfort with anybody but me to answer the door. I know who to let in and who to keep out. And that reminds me of the poor lady. I think he ought to see her. She's just the kind that puts him in a good temper. She dusts Redpenny's papers. Redpenny. I tell you he can't see anybody. Do go away, Emmy. How can I work with you dusting all over me like this? Emmy. I'm not hindering you working, if you call writing letters working. There goes the bell. She looks out of the window. A doctor's carriage. That's more congratulations. She is going out when Sir Colenso Ridgen enters. Have you finished your two eggs, Sonny? Ridgen. Yes. Emmy. Have you put on your clean vest? Ridgen. Yes. Emmy. That's my ducky diamond. Now keep yourself tidy and don't go messing about and dirtying your hands. The people are coming to congratulate you. She goes out. Sir Colenso Ridgen is a man of fifty who has never shaken off his youth. He has the off-handed manner and the little audacities of address which a shy and sensitive man acquires in breaking himself into intercourse with all sorts and conditions of men. His face is a good deal lined. His movements are slower than, for instance, red pennies, and his flaxen hair has lost its luster, but in figure and manner he is more the young man than the titled physician. Even the lines in his face are those of overwork and restless skepticism, 
perhaps partly of curiosity and appetite, rather than of age. Just at present the announcement of his knighthood in the morning papers makes him specially self-conscious, and consequently specially off-hand with Red Benny. Ridgen. Have you seen the papers? You'll have to alter the name in the letters if you haven't. Red Penny. Emmy has just told me. I'm awfully glad. I. Ridgen. Enough, young man, enough. You will soon get accustomed to it. Red Penny. They ought to have done it years ago. Ridgen. They would have. Only they couldn't stand Emmy opening the door, I dare say. Emmy, at the door, announcing, dear shoemaker. She withdraws. A middle-aged gentleman, well-dressed, comes in with a friendly but propitiatory air, not quite sure of his reception. His combination of soft manners and responsive kindliness, with a certain unseizable reserve and a familiar yet foreign chiseling of feature, reveal the Jew, in this instance the handsome gentlemanly Jew, gone a little pigeon-breasted and stale after thirty, as handsome young Jews often do, but still decidedly good-looking. The gentleman. Do you remember me? Schutzmacher. University College School in Belsize Avenue. Looney Schutzmacher, you know. Ridgen. What? Looney. He shakes hands cordially. Why, man, I thought you were dead long ago. Sit down. Schutzmacher sits on the couch, Ridgen on the chair between it and the window. Where have you been these thirty years? Schutzmacher. In general practice, until a few months ago. I've retired. Ridgen. Well done, Looney. I wish I could afford to retire. Was your practice in London? Schutzmacher. No. Ridgen. Fashionable coast practice, I suppose. Schutzmacher. How could I afford to buy a fashionable practice? I hadn't a wrap. I set up in a manufacturing town in the Midlands in a little surgery at ten shillings a week. Ridgen. And made your fortune? Schutzmacher. Well, I'm pretty comfortable. I have a place in Hertfordshire besides our flat in town. If you ever want a quiet Saturday to Monday, I'll take you down in my motor at an hour's notice. Ridgen. Just rolling in money. I wish you rich GPs would teach me how to make some. What's the secret of it? Schutzmacher. Oh, in my case the secret was simple enough, though I suppose I should have got into trouble if it had attracted any notice and I'm afraid you'll think it rather in for dig. Ridgen. Oh, I have an open mind. What was the secret? Schutzmacher. Well, the secret was just two words. Ridgen. Not consultation-free, was it? Schutzmacher, shocked, no, no, really. Ridgen, apologetic, of course not. I was only joking. Schutzmacher. My two words were simply cure-guaranteed. Ridgen, admiring, cure guaranteed. Schutzmacher. Guaranteed. After all, that's what everybody wants from a doctor, isn't it? Ridgen. My dear Looney, it was an inspiration. Was it on the brass plate? Schutzmacher. There was no brass plate. It was a shop window, red, you know, with black lettering. Dr. Leo Schutzmacher, LRCPMRCS Advice and Medicine Sixpence. Cure guaranteed. Ridgen. And the guarantee proved sound nine times out of ten, eh? Schutzmacher, rather hurt at so moderate an estimate. Oh, much oftener than that. 
You see, most people get well all right if they are careful and you give them a little sensible advice. And the medicine really did them good. Parrish's chemical food phosphates, you know. One tablespoonful to a twelve-ounce bottle of water. Nothing better, no matter what the case is. Ridgen. Redpenny. Make a note of Parrish's chemical food. Shoots mature. I take it myself, you know, when I feel run down. Goodbye. You don't mind my calling, do you? Just to congratulate you. Ridgen. Delighted, my dear Looney. Come to lunch on Saturday next week. Bring your motor and take me down to Hertford. Shoots mature. I will. We shall be delighted. Thank you. Goodbye. He goes out with Ridgen, who returns immediately. Redpenny. Old Patty Cullen was here before you were up, to be the first to congratulate you. Ridgen. Indeed. Who taught you to speak of Sir Patrick Cullen as Old Patty Cullen, you young ruffian? Redpenny. You never call him anything else. Ridgen. Not now that I am Sir Colenso. Next thing, you fellows will be calling me Old Collie Ridgen. Redpenny. We do, at STANs. Ridgen. Yuck. That's what makes the medical student the most disgusting figure in modern civilization. No veneration, no manners, no. Emmy, at the door, announcing. Sir Patrick Cullen. She retires. Sir Patrick Cullen is more than twenty years older than Ridgen, not yet quite at the end of his tether, but near it and resigned to it. His name, his plain, downright, sometimes rather arid common sense, his large build and stature, the absence of those odd moments of ceremonial civility by which an old English doctor sometimes shews you what the status of the profession was in England in his youth, and an occasional turn of speech, are Irish, but he has lived all his life in England and is thoroughly acclimatized. His manner to Ridgen, whom he likes, is whimsical and fatherly. To others he is a little gruff and uninviting, apt to substitute more or less expressive grunts for articulate speech, and generally indisposed, at his age, to make much social effort. He shakes Ridgen's hand and beams at him cordially and jocularly. Sir Patrick. Well, young chap, is your hat too small for you, eh? Ridgen. Much too small. I owe it all to you. Sir Patrick. Blarney, my boy. Thank you all the same. He sits in one of the armchairs near the fireplace. Ridgen sits on the couch. Eve come to talk to you a bit. To Redpenny, young man, get out. Redpenny. Certainly, Sir Patrick. He collects his papers and makes for the door. Sir Patrick. Thank you. That's a good lad. Redpenny vanishes. They all put up with me, these young chaps, because I'm an old man, a real old man, not like you. You're only beginning to give yourself the airs of age. Did you ever see a boy cultivating a mustache? Well, a middle-aged doctor cultivating a gray head is much the same sort of spectacle. Ridgen. Good Lord. Yes, I suppose so. And I thought that the days of my vanity were past. Tell me at what age does a man leave off being a fool? Sir Patrick. Remember the Frenchman who asked his grandmother at what age we get free from the temptations of love. The old woman said she didn't know. Ridgen laughs. Well, I make you the same answer. But the world's growing very interesting to me now, Collie. Ridgen. You keep up your interest in science, do you? Sir Patrick. Lord. Yes. 
Modern science is a wonderful thing. Look at your great discovery. Look at all the great discoveries. Where are they leading to? Why, right back to my poor dear old father's ideas and discoveries. He's been dead now over forty years. Oh, it's very interesting. Ridgen. Well, there's nothing like progress, is there? Sir Patrick. Don't misunderstand me, my boy. I'm not belittling your discovery. Most discoveries are made regularly every fifteen years, and it's fully a hundred and fifty since yours was made last. That's something to be proud of. But your discovery's not new. It's only inoculation. My father practiced inoculation until it was made criminal in 1840. That broke the poor old man's heart, Kali. He died of it. And now it turns out that my father was right after all. You've brought us back to inoculation. Ridgen. I know nothing about smallpox. My line is tuberculosis and typhoid and plague. But of course the principle of all vaccines is the same. Sir Patrick. Tuberculosis? Mm mm. You've found out how to cure consumption, eh? Ridgen. I believe so. Sir Patrick. Ah, yes. It's very interesting. What is it the old cardinal says in Browning's play? I have known four and twenty leaders of revolt. Well, I've known over thirty men that found out how to cure consumption. Why do people go on dying of it, Collie? Devilment, I suppose. There was my father's old friend George Boddington of Sutton Coldfield. He discovered the open-air cure in 1840. He was ruined and driven out of his practice for only opening the windows, and now we won't let a consumptive patient have as much as a roof over his head. Oh, it's very, very interesting to an old man. Ridgen. You old cynic, you don't believe a bit in my discovery. Sir Patrick. No, no, I don't go quite so far as that, Collie. But still, you remember Jane Marsh? Ridgen. Jane Marsh? No. Sir Patrick. You don't. Ridgen. No. Sir Patrick. You mean to tell me you don't remember the woman with the tuberculosis ulcer on her arm? Ridgen, enlightened, oh, your washerwoman's daughter. Was her name Jane Marsh? I forgot. Sir Patrick. Perhaps you've forgotten also that you undertook to cure her with Coke's tuberculin. Ridgen. And instead of curing her, it rotted her arm right off. Yes, I remember. Poor Jane. However, she makes a good living out of that arm now by shooing it at medical lectures. Sir Patrick. Still, that wasn't quite what you intended, was it? Ridgen. I took my chance of it. Sir Patrick. Jane did, you mean? Ridgen. Well, it's always the patient who has to take the chance when an experiment is necessary. And we can find out nothing without experiment. Sir Patrick. What did you find out from Jane's case? Ridgen. I found out that the inoculation that ought to cure sometimes kills. Sir Patrick. I could have told you that. Eve tried these modern inoculations a bit myself. Eve killed people with them, and I've cured people with them, but I gave them up because I never could tell which I was going to do. Ridgen, taking a pamphlet from a drawer in the writing table and handing it to him, read that the next time you have an hour to spare, and you'll find out why. Sir Patrick, grumbling and fumbling for his spectacles, oh, bother your pamphlets. What's the practice of it? Looking at the pamphlet, Obstinin? What the devil is Obstinin?
Ridgen. Obstinate is what you butter the disease germs with to make your white blood corpuscles eat them. He sits down again on the couch. Sir Patrick. That's not new. Yves heard this notion that the white corpuscles, what is it that what's his name, Mechnikov, calls them? Ridgen. Phagocytes. Sir Patrick. Aye, phagocytes, yes, yes, yes. Well, I heard this theory that the phagocytes eat up the disease germs years ago, long before you came into fashion. Besides, they don't always eat them. Ridgen. They do when you butter them with obstinin. Sir Patrick. Gammon. Ridgen. No, it's not gammon. What it comes to in practice is this. The phagocytes won't eat the microbes unless the microbes are nicely buttered for them. Well, the patient manufactures the butter for himself all right, but my discovery is that the manufacture of that butter, which I call opsonin, goes on in the system by ups and downs, nature being always rhythmical, you know, and that what the inoculation does is to stimulate the ups or downs, as the case may be. If we had inoculated Jane Marsh when her butter factory was on the upgrade, we should have cured her arm. But we got in on the downgrade and lost her arm for her. I call the upgrade the positive phase and the downgrade the negative phase. Everything depends on your inoculating at the right moment. Inoculate when the patient is in the negative phase and you kill. Inoculate when the patient is in the positive phase and you cure. Sir Patrick. And pray how are you to know whether the patient is in the positive or the negative phase? Ridgen. Send a drop of the patient's blood to the laboratory at STNs and in fifteen minutes I'll give you his obstinate index and figures. If the figure is one, inoculate and cure. If it's under point eight, inoculate and kill. That's my discovery, the most important that has been made since Harvey discovered the circulation of the blood. My tuberculosis patients don't die now. Sir Patrick. And mine do when my inoculation catches them in the negative phase, as you call it. Eh? Ridgen. Precisely. To inject a vaccine into a patient without first testing his obstinin is as near murder as a respectable practitioner can get. If I wanted to kill a man I should kill him that way. Emmy, looking in, will you see a lady that wants her husband's lungs cured? Ridgen impatiently, no. Haven't I told you I will see nobody? To Sir Patrick, I live in a state of siege ever since it got about that I'm a magician who can cure consumption with a drop of serum. To Emmy, don't come to me again about people who have no appointments. I tell you I can see nobody. Emmy. Well, I'll tell her to wait a bit. Ridgen, furious, you'll tell her I can't see her, and send her away, do you hear? Emmy, unmoved, well, will you see Mr. Cutler Walpole? He don't want a cure. He only wants to congratulate you. Ridgen. Of course. Shoo him up. She turns to go. Stop. To Sir Patrick. I want two minutes more with you between ourselves. To Emmy, Emmy, ask Mr. Walpole to wait just two minutes while I finish a consultation. Emmy. Oh, he'll wait all right. He's talking to the poor lady. She goes out. Sir Patrick. Well? What is it? Ridgen. Don't laugh at me. I want your advice. Sir Patrick. Professional advice? Ridgen. Yes. There's something the matter with me. I don't know what it is. Sir Patrick. Neither do I. I suppose you've been sounded. Ridgen. 
Yes, of course. There's nothing wrong with any of the organs, nothing special, anyhow. But I have a curious aching, I don't know where, I can't localize it. Sometimes I think it's my heart, sometimes I suspect my spine. It doesn't exactly hurt me, but it unsettles me completely. I feel that something is going to happen. And there are other symptoms. Scraps of tunes come into my head that seem to me very pretty, though they're quite commonplace. Sir Patrick. Do you hear voices? Ridgen. No. Sir Patrick. I'm glad of that. When my patients tell me that they've made a greater discovery than Harvey, and that they hear voices, I lock them up. Ridgen. You think I'm mad? That's just the suspicion that has come across me once or twice. Tell me the truth. I can bear it. Sir Patrick. You're sure there are no voices? Ridgen. Quite sure. Sir Patrick. Then it's only foolishness. Ridgen. Have you ever met anything like it before in your practice? Sir Patrick. Oh, yes, often. It's very common between the ages of 17 and 22. It sometimes comes on again at 40 or thereabouts. You're a bachelor, you see. It's not serious, if you're careful. Ridgen. About my food? Sir Patrick. No, about your behavior. There's nothing wrong with your spine, and there's nothing wrong with your heart, but there's something wrong with your common sense. You're not going to die but you may be going to make a fool of yourself. So be careful. Ridgen. I see you don't believe in my discovery. Well, sometimes I don't believe in it myself. Thank you all the same. Shall we have Walpole up? Sir Patrick. Oh, have him up. Ridgen rings. He's a clever operator, is Walpole, though he's only one of your chloroform surgeons. In my early days, you made your man drunk, and the porters and students held him down and you had to set your teeth and finish the job fast. Nowadays you work at your ease, and the pain doesn't come until afterwards, when you've taken your check and rolled up your bag and left the house. I tell you, Kali, chloroform has done a lot of mischief. It's enabled every fool to be a surgeon. Ridgen, to Emmy, who answers the bell, shoo Mr. Walpole up. Emmy. He's talking to the lady. Ridgen, exasperated, did I not tell you? Emmy goes out without heeding him. He gives it up, with a shrug, and plants himself with his back to the console, leaning resignedly against it. Sir Patrick. I know your cutler walpoles and their like. They've found out that a man's body's full of bits and scraps of old organs he has no mortal use for. Thanks to chloroform, you can cut half a dozen of them out without leaving him any the worse, except for the illness and the guineas it costs him. I knew the Walpoles well fifteen years ago. The father used to snip off the ends of people's uvulas for fifty guineas, and paint throats with caustic every day for a year at two guineas a time. His brother-in-law extirpated tonsils for two hundred guineas until he took up women's cases at double the fees. Cutler himself worked hard at anatomy to find something fresh to operate on, and at last he got hold of something he calls the nusiform sac, which he's made quite the fashion. People pay him five hundred guineas to cut it out. They might as well get their hair cut for all the difference it makes, but I suppose they feel important after it. You can't go out to dinner now without your neighbor bragging to you of some useless operation or other. Emmy, announcing Mr. Cutler Walpole. She goes out. 
Coupler Walpole is an energetic, unhesitating man of forty, with a cleanly mottled face, very decisive and symmetrical about the shortish, salient, rather pretty nose, and the three trimly turned corners made by his chin and jaws. In comparison with Ridgeon's delicate broken lines, and Sir Patrick's softly rugged aged ones, his face looks machine-made and beeswaxed, but his scrutinizing, daring eyes give it life and force. He seems never at a loss, never in doubt. One feels that if he made a mistake he would make it thoroughly and firmly. He has neat, well-nourished hands, short arms, and is built for strength and compactness rather than for height. He is smartly dressed with a fancy waistcoat, a richly colored scarf secured by a handsome ring, ornaments on his watch chain, spats on his shoes, and a general air of the well-to-do sportsman about him. He goes straight across to Ridgen and shakes hands with him. Walpole. My dear Ridgen, best wishes. Heartiest congratulations. You deserve it. Ridgen. Thank you. Walpole. As a man, mind you. You deserve it as a man. The obstinate is simple rot, as any capable surgeon can tell you, but we're all delighted to see your personal qualities officially recognized. Sir Patrick, how are you? I sent you a paper lately about a little thing I invented, a new saw. For shoulder blades. Sir Patrick meditatively, yes, I got it. It's a good saw, a useful, handy instrument. Walpole, confidently, I knew you'd see its points. Sir Patrick. Yes, I remember that saw sixty-five years ago. Walpole. What? Sir Patrick. It was called a cabinet maker's jimmy then. Walpole. Get out. Nonsense. Cabinet maker B. Ridgen. Never mind him, Walpole. He's jealous. Walpole. By the way, I hope I'm not disturbing you two in anything private. Ridgen. No, no, sit down. I was only consulting him. I'm rather out of sorts. Overwork, I suppose. Walpole, swiftly, I know what's the matter with you. I can see it in your complexion. I can feel it in the grip of your hand. Ridgen. What is it? Walpole. Blood poisoning. Ridgen. Blood poisoning. Impossible. Walpole. I tell you, blood poisoning. Ninety-five percent of the human race suffer from chronic blood poisoning and die of it. It's as simple as ABC your nuciform sac is full of decaying matter, undigested food and waste products, rank tomains. Now you take my advice, Ridgen. Let me cut it out for you. You'll be another man afterwards. Sir Patrick. Don't you like him as he is? Walpole. No, I don't. I don't like any man who hasn't a healthy circulation. I tell you this. In an intelligently governed country people wouldn't be allowed to go about with nusiform sacs, making themselves centers of infection. The operation ought to be compulsory. It's ten times more important than vaccination. Sir Patrick. Have you had your own sack removed, may I ask? Walpole, triumphantly, I haven't got one. Look at me. Eve knows symptoms. I'm as sound as a bell. About five percent of the population haven't got any, and I'm one of the five percent I'll give you an instance. You know Mrs. Jack Falljamp, the smart Mrs. Falljamp? I operated at Easter on her sister-in-law. Lady Gorin, and found she had the biggest sack I ever saw. It held about two ounces. Well, Mrs., 
Faljamp had the right spirit, the genuine hygienic instinct. She couldn't stand her sister-in-law being a clean, sound woman, and she simply a whited sepulchre. So she insisted on my operating on her, too. And by George, sir, she hadn't any sack at all. Not a trace. Not a rudiment. I was so taken aback, so interested, that I forgot to take the sponges out, and was stitching them up inside her when the nurse missed them. Somehow, I'd made sure she'd have an exceptionally large one. He sits down on the couch, squaring his shoulders and shooting his hands out of his cuffs as he sets his knuckles akimbo. Emmy, looking in, Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. A long and expectant pause follows this announcement. All look to the door, but there is no Sir Ralph. Ridgen, at last, where is he? Emmy, looking back, dread him, I thought he was following me. He stayed down to talk to that lady. Ridgen, exploding, I told you to tell that lady, Emmy vanishes. Walpole, jumping up again, oh, by the way, Ridgen, that reminds me. Eve been talking to that poor girl. It's her husband, and she thinks it's a case of consumption. The usual wrong diagnosis. These damned general practitioners ought never to be allowed to touch a patient except under the orders of a consultant. She's been describing his symptoms to me, and the case is as plain as a pikestaff, bad blood poisoning. Now she's poor. She can't afford to have him operated on. Well, you send him to me. I'll do it for nothing. There's room for him in my nursing home. I'll put him straight, and feed him up and make him happy. I like making people happy. He goes to the chair near the window. Emmy, looking in, here he is. Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington wafts himself into the room. He is a tall man, with a head like a tall and slender egg. He has been in his time a slender man, but now, in his sixth decade, his waistcoat has filled out somewhat. His fair eyebrows arch good-naturedly and uncritically. He has a most musical voice. His speech is a perpetual anthem, and he never tires of the sound of it. He radiates an enormous self-satisfaction, cheering, reassuring, healing by the mere incompatibility of disease or anxiety with his welcome presence. Even broken bones, it is said, have been known to unite at the sound of his voice. He is a born healer, as independent of mere treatment, and skill as any Christian scientist. When he expands into oratory or scientific exposition, he is as energetic as Walpole, but it is with a bland, voluminous, atmospheric energy, which envelopes its subject and its audience, and makes interruption or inattention impossible, and imposes veneration and credulity on all but the strongest minds. He is known in the medical world as B. B., and the envy roused by his success in practice is softened by the conviction that he is, scientifically considered, a colossal humbug, the fact being that, though he knows just as much, and just as little, as his contemporaries, the qualifications that pass muster in common men reveal their weakness when hung on his egregious personality. B. B. Aha! Sir Colenso. Sir Colenso, eh? Welcome to the Order of Knighthood. Ridgen, shaking hands, thank you, B. 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 What? Sir Patrick. And how are we today? A little chilly? A little stiff? But hale and still the cleverest of us all. Sir Patrick grunts. What? Walpole. The absent-minded beggar, eh? Walpole. What does that mean? B. B. 
Have you forgotten the lovely opera singer I sent you to have that growth taken off her vocal cords? Walpole, springing to his feet, great heavens, man, you don't mean to say you sent her for a throat operation. B. B. Archly, aha. Ha ha. Aha. Trilling like a lark as he shakes his finger at Walpole. You removed her nuciform sack. Well, well. Force of habit. Force of habit. Never mind, any ever mind. She got back her voice after it, and thinks you the greatest surgeon alive. And so you are, so you are, so you are. Walpole, in a tragic whisper, intensely serious, blood poisoning. I see. I see. He sits down again. Sir Patrick. And how is a certain distinguished family getting on under your care, Sir Ralph? B. B. Our friend Ridgeon will be gratified to hear that I have tried his obstinate treatment on little Prince Henry with complete success. Ridgeon, startled and anxious, but how? B. B. Continuing, I suspected typhoid, the head gardener's boy had it, so I just called at SDN's one day and got a tube of your very excellent serum. You were out, unfortunately. Ridgeon. I hope they explained to you carefully. B. B. Waving away the absurd suggestion, Lord bless you, my dear fellow, I didn't need any explanations. I'd left my wife in the carriage at the door, and I no time to be taught my business by your young chaps. I know all about it. Eve handled these antitoxins ever since they first came out. Ridgeon. But they're not antitoxins, and they're dangerous unless you use them at the right time. B. B. Of course they are. Everything is dangerous unless you take it at the right time. An apple at breakfast does you good, an apple at bedtime upsets you for a week. There are only two rules for antitoxins. First, don't be afraid of them. Second, inject them a quarter of an hour before meals, three times a day. Ridgen, appalled, great heavens, B. B. No, no, no. B. B. Sweeping on irresistibly, yes, 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 Collie. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, you know. It was an immense success. It acted like magic on the little prince. Up went his temperature. Off to bed I packed him, and in a week he was all right again, and absolutely immune from typhoid for the rest of his life. The family were very nice about it. Their gratitude was quite touching, but I said they owed it all to you, Ridgen, and I am glad to think that your knighthood is the result. Ridgen, I am deeply obliged to you. Overcome, he sits down on the chair near the couch. B. B. Not at all, not at all. Your own merit. Come. 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 Don't give way. Ridgen. It's nothing. I was a little giddy just now. Overwork, I suppose. Walpole. Blood poisoning. B. B. Overwork. There's no such thing. I do the work of ten men. Am I giddy? No, no. If you're not well, you have a disease. It may be a slight one, but it's a disease. And what is a disease? The lodgment in the system of a pathogenic germ, and the multiplication of that germ. What is the remedy? A very simple one. Find the germ and kill it. Sir Patrick. Suppose there's no germ? B. B. Impossible, Sir Patrick. There must be a germ, else how could the patient be ill? Sir Patrick. Can you shew me the germ of overwork? B. B. No. But why? Why? 
Because, my dear Sir Patrick, though the germ is there, it's invisible. Nature has given it no danger signal for us. These germs, these bacilli, are translucent bodies, like glass, like water. To make them visible you must stain them. Well, my dear Patty, do what you will, some of them won't stain. They won't take cochineal, they won't take methylene blue, they won't take gentian violet, they won't take any coloring matter. Consequently, though we know, as scientific men, that they exist, we cannot see them. But can you disprove their existence? Can you conceive the disease existing without them? Can you, for instance, shew me a case of diphtheria without the bacillus? Sir Patrick. No, but I'll shew you the same bacillus, without the disease, in your own throat. B. B. No, not the same, Sir Patrick. It is an entirely different bacillus. Only the two are, unfortunately, so exactly alike that you cannot see the difference. You must understand, my dear Sir Patrick, that every one of these interesting little creatures has an imitator. Just as men imitate each other, germs imitate each other. There is the genuine diphtheria bacillus discovered by Loeffler, and there is the pseudobacillus, exactly like it, which you could find, as you say, in my own throat. Sir Patrick. And how do you tell one from the other? B. B. Well, obviously, if the bacillus is the genuine Loeffler, you have diphtheria, and if it's the pseudobacillus, you're quite well. Nothing simpler. Science is always simple and always profound. It is only the half-truths that are dangerous. Ignorant faddists pick up some superficial information about germs, and they write to the papers and try to discredit science. They dupe and mislead many honest and worthy people. But science has a perfect answer to them on every point. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep, or taste not the Pyrian spring. I mean no disrespect to your generation, Sir Patrick. Some of you old stagers did marvels through sheer professional intuition and clinical experience. But when I think of the average men of your day, ignorantly bleeding and cupping and purging, and scattering germs over their patients from their clothes and instruments, and contrast all that with the scientific certainty and simplicity of my treatment of the little prince the other day, I can't help being proud of my own generation, the men who were trained on the germ theory, the veterans of the great struggle over evolution in the seventies. We may have our faults, but at least we are men of science. That is why I am taking up your treatment, rigid and pushing it. It's scientific. He sits down on the chair near the couch. Emmy, at the door, announcing D.R. Blenkinsop. D.R. Blenkinsop is a very different case from the others. He is clearly not a prosperous man. He is flabby and shabby, cheaply fed and cheaply clothed. He has the lines made by a conscience between his eyes, and the lines made by continual money worries all over his face, cut all the deeper as he has seen better days, and hails his well-to-do colleagues as their contemporary and old hospital friend, though even in this he has to struggle with the diffidence of poverty and relegation to the poorer middle class. Ridgen. How are you, Blenkinsop? Blenkinsop. Eve come to offer my humble congratulations. Oh dear. All the great guns are before me. B. B. Patronizing, but charming. How do you do, Blenkinsop? How do you do? Blenkinsop. And Sir Patrick, too, Sir Patrick grunts. Ridgen. You've met Walpole, of course. Walpole. How do you do? Blenkinsop. 
It's the first time Eve had that honor. In my poor little practice there are no chances of meeting you great men. I know nobody but the SDN's men of my own day. Turigen, and so you're Sir Colenso. How does it feel? Rigen. Foolish at first. Don't take any notice of it. Blinkensop. I'm ashamed to say I haven't a notion what your great discovery is, but I congratulate you all the same for the sake of old times. B. B. Shocked, but my dear Blinkensop, you used to be rather keen on science. Blinkensop. Ah, I used to be a lot of things. I used to have two or three decent suits of clothes and flannels to go up the river on Sundays. Look at me now, this is my best, and it must last till Christmas. What can I do? Eve never opened a book since I was qualified thirty years ago. I used to read the medical papers at first, but you know how soon a man drops that. Besides, I can't afford them, and what are they after all but trade papers, full of advertisements? I've forgotten all my science. What's the use of my pretending I haven't? But I have great experience, clinical experience, and bedside experience is the main thing, isn't it? B. B. No doubt. Always provided, mind you, that you have a sound scientific theory to correlate your observations at the bedside. Mere experience by itself is nothing. If I take my dog to the bedside with me, he sees what I see. But he learns nothing from it. Why? Because he's not a scientific dog. Walpole. It amuses me to hear you physicians and general practitioners talking about clinical experience. What do you see at the bedside but the outside of the patient? Well, it isn't his outside that's wrong, except perhaps in skin cases. What you want is a daily familiarity with people's insides, and that you can only get at the operating table. I know what I'm talking about. Eve been a surgeon and a consultant for twenty years, and Eve never known a general practitioner right in his diagnosis yet. Bring them a perfectly simple case, and they diagnose cancer and arthritis and appendicitis, and every other itis, when any really experienced surgeon can see that it's a plain case of blood poisoning. Blinkensop. Ah, it's easy for you gentlemen to talk, but what would you say if you had my practice? Except for the workmen's clubs, my patients are all clerks and shopmen. They daren't be ill, they can't afford it. And when they break down, what can I do for them? You can send your people to S.D. Moritz, or to Egypt or recommend horse exercise or motoring or champagne jelly or complete change and rest for six months. I might as well order my people a slice of the moon. And the worst of it is, I'm too poor to keep well myself on the cooking I have to put up with. Eve's such a wretched digestion, and I look it. How am I to inspire confidence? He sits disconsolately on the couch. Ridgen restlessly don't blink and sop, it's too painful. The most tragic thing in the world is a sick doctor. Walpole. Yes, by George. It's like a bald-headed man trying to sell a hair restorer. Thank God I'm a surgeon. B. B. Sunnily, I am never sick. Never had a day's illness in my life. That's what enables me to sympathize with my patients. Walpole. Interested. What? You're never ill? B. B. Never. Walpole. That's interesting. I believe you have no nusiform sack. If you ever do feel at all queer, I should very much like to have a look. B. B. Thank you, my dear fellow, but I'm too busy just now. Ridgen.
I was just telling them when you came in, Blenkinsop, that I have worked myself out of sorts. Blenkinsop. Well, it seems presumptuous of me to offer a prescription to a great man like you, but still I have great experience, and if I might recommend a pound of ripe greengages every day half an hour before lunch, I'm sure you'd find a benefit. They're very cheap. Ridgen. What do you say to that, B? 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 Encouragingly, very sensible. Blenkinsop, very sensible indeed. I'm delighted to see that you disapprove of drugs. Sir Patrick grunts. B. B. Archly, aha. Ha ha. Did I hear from the fireside armchair the bow wow of the old school defending its drugs? Ah, uh, believe me, Patty, the world would be healthier if every chemist's shop in England were demolished. Look at the papers. Full of scandalous advertisements of patent medicines. A huge commercial system of quackery and poison. Well, whose fault is it? Ours. I say ours. We set the example. We spread the superstition. We taught the people to believe in bottles of doctor's stuff, and now they buy it at the stores instead of consulting a medical man. Walpole. Quite true. Eve not prescribed a drug for the last fifteen years. B. B. Drugs can only repress symptoms. They cannot eradicate disease. The true remedy for all diseases is nature's remedy. Nature and science are at one, Sir Patrick, believe me, though you were taught differently. Nature has provided, in the white corpuscles as you call them, in the phagocytes as we call them, a natural means of devouring and destroying all disease germs. There is at bottom only one genuinely scientific treatment for all diseases, and that is to stimulate the phagocytes. Stimulate the phagocytes. Drugs are a delusion. Find the germ of the disease. Prepare from it a suitable antitoxin. Inject it three times a day quarter of an hour before meals. And what is the result? The phagocytes are stimulated. They devour the disease. And the patient recovers. Unless, of course, he's too far gone. That, I take it, is the essence of Ridgen's discovery. Sir Patrick, dreamily, as I sit here, I seem to hear my poor old father talking again. B. B. Rising in incredulous amazement, your father. But, Lord bless my soul, Patty, your father must have been an older man than you. Sir Patrick. Word for word almost, he said what you say. No more drugs? Nothing but inoculation. B. B. Almost contemptuously, inoculation. Do you mean smallpox inoculation? Sir Patrick. Yes. In the privacy of our family circle, sir, my father used to declare his belief that smallpox inoculation was good, not only for smallpox, but for all fevers. B. B. Suddenly rising to the new idea with immense interest and excitement. What? Ridgen, did you hear that? Sir Patrick, I am more struck by what you have just told me than I can well express your father, sir, anticipated a discovery of my own. Listen, Walpole. Blenkinsop, attend one moment. You will all be intensely interested in this. I was put on the track by accident. I had a typhoid case and a tetanus case side by side in the hospital, a beetle and a city missionary. Think of what that meant for them, poor fellows. Can a beetle be dignified with typhoid? Can a missionary be eloquent with lockjaw? No, no. Well, I got some typhoid antitoxin from Ridgen and a tube of Moldalese antitetanus serum. 
But the missionary jerked all my things off the table in one of his paroxysms, and in replacing them I put Rigen's tube where Moldalese ought to have been. The consequence was that I inoculated the typhoid case for tetanus and the tetanus case for typhoid. The doctors looked greatly concerned. B. B. Undamped smiles triumphantly. Well, they recovered. They recovered. Except for a touch of S.D. Vitus's dance, the missionaries as well today as ever, and the Beatles ten times the man he was. Blinkensop. Eve known things like that happen. They can't be explained. B. B. Severely Blinkensop. There is nothing that cannot be explained by science. What did I do? Did I fold my hands helplessly and say that the case could not be explained? By no means. I sat down and used my brains. I thought the case out on scientific principles. I asked myself why didn't the missionary die of typhoid on top of tetanus, and the beetle of tetanus on top of typhoid? There's a problem for you, Ridgen. Think, Sir Patrick. Reflect Blenkinsop. Look at it without prejudice, Walpole. What is the real work of the antitoxin? Simply to stimulate the phagocytes. Very well. But so long as you stimulate the phagocytes, what does it matter which particular sort of serum you use for the purpose? Ha ha. Eh? Do you see? Do you grasp it? Ever since that Eve used all sorts of antitoxins absolutely indiscriminately, with perfectly satisfactory results. I inoculated the little prince with your stuff, Rigen, because I wanted to give you a lift. But two years ago I tried the experiment of treating a scarlet fever case with a sample of hydrophobia serum from the Pasteur Institute, and it answered capitally. It stimulated the phagocytes, and the phagocytes did the rest. That is why Sir Patrick's father found that inoculation cured all fevers. It stimulated the phagocytes. He throws himself into his chair, exhausted with the triumph of his demonstration, and beams magnificently on them. Emmy. Looking in, Mr. Walpole, your motor's come for you, and it's frightening Sir Patrick's horses, so come along quick. Walpole, rising, goodbye, Ridgen. Ridgen. Goodbye, and many thanks. B. B. You see my point, Walpole? Emmy. He can't wait, Sir Ralph. The carriage will be into the area if he don't come. Walpole. I'm coming. To B. B. There's nothing in your point. Phagocytosis is pure rot, the cases are all blood poisoning, and the knife is the real remedy. Bye-bye, Sir Patty. Happy to have met you, Mr. Blinkensop. Now, Emmy. He goes out, followed by Emmy. B. B. Sadly, Walpole has no intellect. A mere surgeon. Wonderful operator. But after all, what is operating? Only manual labor. Brain. Brain remains master of the situation. The nuciform sac is utter nonsense. There's no such organ. It's a mere accidental kink in the membrane, occurring in perhaps two and a half percent of the population. Of course I'm glad for Walpole's sake that the operation is fashionable, for he's a dear good fellow. And after all, as I always tell people, the operation will do them no harm. Indeed, Eve known the nervous shake-up and the fortnight in bed do people a lot of good after a hard London season, but still it's a shocking fraud. Rising, well, I must be toddling. Goodbye, Patty, Sir Patrick grunts. Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye, my dear Blenkinsop. Goodbye. Goodbye, Ridgen. Don't fret about your health. You know what to do. 
If your liver is sluggish, a little mercury never does any harm. If you feel restless, try bromide. If that doesn't answer, a stimulant, you know, a little phosphorus and strychnine. If you can't sleep, trional, trional, trian. Sir Patrick, drilly, but no drugs, collie, remember that. B, B, firmly, certainly not. Quite right, Sir Patrick. As temporary expedients, of course, but as treatment, no, no. Keep away from the chemist's shop, my dear Ridgen, whatever you do. Ridgen, going to the door with him, I will. And thank you for the knighthood. Goodbye. B. B. Stopping at the door, with the beam in his eye twinkling a little, by the way, who's your patient? Ridgen. Who? B. B. Downstairs. Charming woman. Tuberculous husband. Ridgen. Is she there still? Emmy, looking in, come on, Sir Ralph, your wife's waiting in the carriage. B. B. Suddenly sobered, oh. Goodbye. He goes out almost precipitately. Ridgen. Emmy, is that woman there still? If so, tell her once for all that I can't and won't see her. Do you hear? Emmy. Oh, she ain't in a hurry. She doesn't mind how long she waits. She goes out. Blinkensop. I must be off, too. Every half hour I spend away from my work costs me eighteen pence. Goodbye, Sir Patrick. Sir Patrick. Goodbye. Goodbye. Ridgen. Come to lunch with me some day this week. Blinkensop. I can't afford it, dear boy, and it would put me off my own food for a week. Thank you all the same. Ridgen, uneasy at Blinkensop's poverty, can I do nothing for you? Blinkensop. Well, if you have an old frock coat to spare, you see what would be an old one for you would be a new one for me, so remember the next time you turn out your wardrobe. Goodbye. He hurries out. Ridgen, looking after him, poor chap, turning to Sir Patrick, so that's why they made me a knight. And that's the medical profession. Sir Patrick. And a very good profession, too, my lad. When you know as much as I know of the ignorance and superstition of the patients, you'll wonder that we're half as good as we are. Ridgen. We're not a profession, we're a conspiracy. Sir Patrick. All professions are conspiracies against the laity. And we can't all be geniuses like you. Every fool can get ill, but every fool can't be a good doctor. There are not enough good ones to go round. And for all you know, Bloomfield Bonington kills less people than you do. Ridgen. Oh, very likely. But he really ought to know the difference between a vaccine and an antitoxin. Stimulate the phagocytes. The vaccine doesn't affect the phagocytes at all. He's all wrong, hopelessly, dangerously wrong. To put a tube of serum into his hands is murder, simple murder. Emmy, returning now, Sir Patrick. How long more are you going to keep them horses standing in the draft? Sir Patrick. What's that to you, you old catamaran? Emmy. Come, come, now. None of your temper to me. And it's time for Collie to get to his work. Ridgen. Behave yourself, Emmy. Get out. Emmy. Oh, I learned how to behave myself before I learned you to do it. I know what doctors are, sitting talking together about themselves when they ought to be with their poor patients. And I know what horses are, Sir Patrick. I was brought up in the country. Now be good, and come along. Sir Patrick, 
rising, very well, very well, very well. Goodbye, Kali. He pats Rijin on the shoulder and goes out, turning for a moment at the door to look meditatively at Emmy and say, with grave conviction, you are an ugly old devil, and no mistake. Emmy, highly indignant, calling after him, you're no beauty yourself. To Rijin, much flustered, they've no manners, they think they can say what they like to me, and you set them on, you do. I'll teach them their places. Here now, are you going to see that pur thing or are you not? Rijin. I tell you for the fiftieth time I won't see anybody. Send her away. Emmy. Oh, I'm tired of being told to send her away. What good will that do her? Rijin. Must I get angry with you, Emmy? Emmy, coaxing, come now. Just see her for a minute to please me. There's a good boy. She's given me half a crown. She thinks it's life and death to her husband for her to see you. Rijin. Values her husband's life at half a crown. Emmy. Well, it's all she can afford, poor lamb. The mothers think nothing of half a sovereign just to talk about themselves to you, the sluts. Besides, she'll put you in a good temper for the day, because it's a good deed to see her, and she's the sort that gets round you. Rijin. Well, she hasn't done so badly. For half a crown she's had a consultation with Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington and Cutler Walpole. That's six guineas worth to start with. I dare say she's consulted Blenkinsop too. That's another eighty pence. Emmy. Then you'll see her for me, won't you? Ridgen. Oh, send her up and be hanged. Emmy trots out, satisfied. Ridgen calls Redpenny. Redpenny, appearing at the door, what is it? Ridgen. There's a patient coming up. If she hasn't gone in five minutes, come in with an urgent call from the hospital for me. You understand, she's to have a strong hint to go. Redpenny. Right-o. He vanishes. Ridgen goes to the glass and arranges his tie a little. Emmy, announcing Mrs. Dubidad, Ridgen leaves the glass and goes to the writing table. The lady comes in. Emmy goes out and shuts the door. Ridgen who has put on an impenetrable and rather distant professional manner, turns to the lady and invites her, by a gesture, to sit down on the couch. Mrs. Dubdat is beyond all demur an arrestingly good-looking young woman. She has something of the grace and romance of a wild creature, with a good deal of the elegance and dignity of a fine lady. Ridgen, who is extremely susceptible to the beauty of women, instinctively assumes the defensive at once and hardens his manner still more. He has an impression that she is very well dressed, but she has a figure on which any dress would look well, and carries herself with the unaffected distinction of a woman who has never in her life suffered from those doubts and fears as to her social position which spoil the manners of most middling people. She is tall, slender, and strong, has dark hair, dressed so as to look like hair and not like a bird's nest or a pantaloon's wig, fashion wavering just then between these two models, has unexpectedly narrow, Subtle, dark-fringed eyes that alter her expression disturbingly when she is excited and flashes them wide open, is softly impetuous in her speech and swift in her movements, and is just now in mortal anxiety. She carries a portfolio. Mrs. Dubdat, in low urgent tones, Dr. Ridgen, curtly, wait. Before you begin, let me tell you at once that I can do nothing for you. My hands are full. I sent you that message by my old servant. You would not take that answer. Mrs. Dubat. How could I? 
Ridgeon. You bribed her. Mrs. DeBat. I. Ridgeon. That doesn't matter. She coaxed me to see you. Well, you must take it from me now that with all the goodwill in the world, I cannot undertake another case. Mrs. DeBat. Doctor, you must save my husband. You must. When I explain to you, you will see that you must. It is not an ordinary case, not like any other case. He is not like anybody else in the world. Oh, believe me, he is not. I can prove it to you, fingering her portfolio. I have brought some things to shoe you. And you can save him. The papers say you can. Ridgeon. What's the matter? Tuberculosis? Mrs. DeBat. Yes. His left lung. Ridgeon, yes, you needn't tell me about that. Mrs. DeBat. You can cure him, if only you will. It is true that you can, isn't it? In great distress, so tell me, please. Ridgeon, warningly, you are going to be quiet and self-possessed, aren't you? Mrs. DeBat. Yes. I beg your pardon. I know I shouldn't. Giving way again, oh, please, say that you can, and then I shall be all right. Ridgeon, huffily, I am not a curemonger. If you want cures, you must go to the people who sell them. Recovering himself, ashamed of the tone of his own voice, but I have at the hospital ten tuberculous patients whose lives I believe I can save. Mrs. DeBat. Thank God. Ridgeon. Wait a moment. Try to think of those ten patients as ten shipwrecked men on a raft, a raft that is barely large enough to save them, that will not support one more. Another head bobs up through the waves at the side. Another man begs to be taken aboard. He implores the captain of the raft to save him. But the captain can only do that by pushing one of his ten off the raft and drowning him to make room for the new comer. That is what you are asking me to do, Mrs. DeBet. But how can that be? I don't understand. Surely. Ridgeon. You must take my word for it that it is so. My laboratory, my staff, and myself are working at full pressure. We are doing our utmost. The treatment is a new one. It takes time, means, and skill, and there is not enough for another case. Our ten cases are already chosen cases. Do you understand what I mean by chosen? Mrs. DeBat. Chosen. No, I can't understand. Ridgeon, sternly, you must understand. You've got to understand and to face it. In every single one of those ten cases I have had to consider, not only whether the man could be saved, but whether he was worth saving. There were fifty cases to choose from, and forty had to be condemned to death. Some of the forty had young wives and helpless children. If the hardness of their cases could have saved them, they would have been saved ten times over. Eve, no doubt your case is a hard one. I can see the tears in your eyes. She hastily wipes her eyes. I know that you have a torrent of entreaties ready for me the moment I stop speaking, but it's no use. You must go to another doctor. Mrs. DeBat. But can you give me the name of another doctor who understands your secret? Ridgeon. I have no secret. I am not a quack. Mrs. DeBat. I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to say anything wrong. I don't understand how to speak to you. Oh, pray don't be offended. Ridgeon, again a little ashamed. There. There. Never mind. He relaxes and sits down. After all, I'm talking nonsense. I dare say I am a quack. A quack with a qualification. 
But my discovery is not patented. Mrs. DeBat. Then can any doctor cure my husband? Oh, why don't they do it? I have tried so many. I have spent so much. If only you would give me the name of another doctor. Ridgen. Every man in this street is a doctor. But outside myself and the handful of men I am training at SDNs, there is nobody as yet who has mastered the obstinate treatment. And we are full up. I'm sorry, but that is all I can say. Rising, good morning. Mrs. Dubdat, suddenly and desperately taking some drawings from her portfolio. Doctor, look at these. You understand drawings. You have good ones in your waiting room. Look at them. They are his work. Ridgen. It's no use my looking. He looks, all the same, hello. He takes one to the window and studies it. Yes, this is the real thing. Yes, yes. He looks at another and returns to her. These are very clever. They're unfinished, aren't they? Mrs. DeBat. He gets tired so soon. But you see, don't you, what a genius he is. You see that he is worth saving. Oh, doctor, I married him just to help him to begin. I had money enough to tide him over the hard years at the beginning, to enable him to follow his inspiration until his genius was recognized. And I was useful to him as a model. His drawings of me sold quite quickly. Ridgen. Have you got one? Mrs. Dubdat, producing another, only this one. It was the first. Ridgen, devouring it with his eyes, that's a wonderful drawing. Why is it called Jennifer? Mrs. Dubdat. My name is Jennifer. Ridgen. A strange name. Mrs. Dubdat. Not in Cornwall. I am Cornish. It's only what you call Guinevere. Ridgen, repeating the names with a certain pleasure in them, Guinevere. Jennifer. Looking again at the drawing, yes, it's really a wonderful drawing. Excuse me, but may I ask is it for sale? I'll buy it. Mrs. Debat. Oh, take it. It's my own, he gave it to me. Take it. Take them all. Take everything, ask anything, but save him. You can, you will, you must. Redpenny, entering with every sign of alarm, they've just telephoned from the hospital that you're to come instantly, a patient on the point of death. The carriage is waiting. Ridgen, intolerantly, oh, nonsense, get out. Greatly annoyed, what do you mean by interrupting me like this? Redpenny. But, Ridgen, shut. Can't you see I'm engaged? Be off. Redpenny, bewildered, vanishes. Mrs. Dubdat, rising, doctor, one instant only before you go. Ridgen. Sit down. It's nothing. Mrs. Dubdat. But the patient. He said he was dying. Ridgen. Oh, he's dead by this time. Never mind. Sit down. Mrs. Dubdat, sitting down and breaking down, oh, you none of you care. You see people die every day. Ridgen, petting her, nonsense. It's nothing. I told him to come in and say that. I thought I should want to get rid of you. Mrs. Dubdat, shocked at the falsehood. Oh. Ridgen, continuing, don't look so bewildered. There's nobody dying. Mrs. Dubdat. My husband is. Ridgen, pulling himself together. Ah, yes, I had forgotten your husband. Mrs. Dubdat, you are asking me to do a very serious thing. Mrs. Dubat. 
I am asking you to save the life of a great man. Rijin. You are asking me to kill another man for his sake, for as surely as I undertake another case, I shall have to hand back one of the old ones to the ordinary treatment. Well, I don't shrink from that. I have had to do it before, and I will do it again if you can convince me that his life is more important than the worse life I am now saving. But you must convince me first. Mrs. Debat. He made those drawings, and they are not the best, nothing like the best. Only I did not bring the really best, so few people like them. He is twenty-three. His whole life is before him. Won't you let me bring him to you? Won't you speak to him? Won't you see for yourself? Ridgen. Is he well enough to come to a dinner at the Star and Garter at Richmond? Mrs. Debat. Oh, yes. Why? Ridgen. I'll tell you. I am inviting all my old friends to a dinner to celebrate my knighthood. You've seen about it in the papers, haven't you? Mrs. Debat. Yes, oh yes. That was how I found out about you. Ridgen. It will be a doctor's dinner, and it was to have been a bachelor's dinner. I'm a bachelor. Now if you will entertain for me, and bring your husband, he will meet me, and he will meet some of the most eminent men in my profession, Sir Patrick Cullen, Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington, Cutler Walpole, and others. I can put the case to them, and your husband will have to stand or fall by what we think of him. Will you come? Mrs. Debat. Yes, of course I will come. Oh, thank you, thank you. And may I bring some of his drawings, the really good ones? Ridgen. Yes. I will let you know the date in the course of tomorrow. Leave me your address. Mrs. Debat. Thank you again and again. You have made me so happy. I know you will admire him and like him. This is my address. She gives him her card. Ridgen. Thank you. He rings. Mrs. Dibdat embarrassed. May I? Is there? Should I? I mean, she blushes and stops in confusion. Ridgen. What's the matter? Mrs. Dibdat. Your fee for this consultation? Ridgen. Oh, I forgot that. Shall we say a beautiful drawing of his favorite model for the whole treatment, including the cure? Mrs. Debat. You are very generous. Thank you. I know you will cure him. Goodbye. Ridgen. I will. Goodbye. They shake hands. By the way, you know, don't you, that tuberculosis is catching. You take every precaution, I hope. Mrs. Debat. I am not likely to forget it. They treat us like lepers at the hotels. Emmy at the door. Well, dearie, have you got round him? Ridgen. Yes. Attend to the door and hold your tongue. Emmy. That's a good boy. She goes out with Mrs. Debat. Ridgen, alone, consultation free. Cure guaranteed. He heaves a great sigh. Act 2. After dinner on the terrace at the Star and Garter, Richmond. Cloudless summer night. Nothing disturbs the stillness except from time to time the long trajectory of a distant train and the measured clucking of oars coming up from the Thames in the valley below. The dinner is over, and three of the eight chairs are empty. Sir Patrick, with his back to the view, is at the head of the square table with Ridgen. The two chairs opposite them are empty. On their right come, first, a vacant chair, and then one very fully occupied by B. B., who basks blissfully in the moonbeams. On their left, Schutzmacher and Walpole. 
The entrance to the hotel is on their right, behind B. B. The five men are silently enjoying their coffee and cigarettes, full of food, and not altogether void of wine. Mrs. Dubat, wrapped up for departure, comes in. They rise except Sir Patrick, but she takes one of the vacant places at the foot of the table, next B. B. And they sit down again. Mrs. Dubdat, as she enters, Lewis will be here presently. He is shooing D.R. Blenkinsop how to work the telephone. She sits. Oh, I am so sorry we have to go. It seems such a shame, this beautiful night. And we have enjoyed ourselves so much. Ridgen. I don't believe another half hour would do Mr. Dubdat a bit of harm. Sir Patrick. Come now, Collie, come. Come. None of that. You take your man home, Mrs. Dubdat, and get him to bed before eleven. B, B, yes, yes. Bed before eleven. Quite right, quite right. Sorry to lose you, my dear lady, but Sir Patrick's orders are the laws of, er, of Tyre and Sidon. Walpole. Let me take you home in my motor. Sir Patrick. No, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Walpole. Your motor will take Mr. and Mrs. Dubdat to the station, and quite far enough too for an open carriage at night. Mrs. Dubdat. Oh, I am sure the train is best. Ridgen. Well, Mrs. Dubdat, we have had a most enjoyable evening. Walpole. Most enjoyable. B. B. Delightful. Charming. Unforgettable. Mrs. Dubdat, with a touch of shy anxiety, what did you think of Lewis? Or am I wrong to ask? Ridgen. Wrong. Why, we are all charmed with him. Walpole. Delighted. B. B. Most happy to have met him. A privilege, a real privilege. Sir Patrick grunts. Mrs. Dubdat quickly, Sir Patrick, are you uneasy about him? Sir Patrick, discreetly, I admire his drawings greatly, ma'am. Mrs. Dubdat. Yes, but I meant... Ridgen. You shall go away quite happy. He's worth saving. He must and shall be saved. Mrs. Dubdat rises and gasps with delight, relief, and gratitude. They all rise except Sir Patrick and Schutzmacher, and come reassuringly to her. B. B. Certainly, certainly. Walpole. There's no real difficulty, if only you know what to do. Mrs. Dubdat. Oh, how can I ever thank you? From this night I can begin to be happy at last. You don't know what I feel. She sits down in tears. They crowd about her to console her. B. B. My dear lady, come, come. Come, come. Very persuasively, come, come. Walpole. Don't mind us. Have a good cry. Ridgen. No, don't cry. Your husband had better not know that we've been talking about him. Mrs. Dubdat quickly pulling herself together. No, of course not. Please don't mind me. What a glorious thing it must be to be a doctor. They laugh. Don't laugh. You don't know what you've done for me. I never knew until now how deadly afraid I was, how I had come to dread the worst. I never dared let myself know. But now the relief has come, now I know. Louis Dubdat comes from the hotel, in his overcoat his throat wrapped in a shawl. He is a slim young man of twenty-three, physically still a stripling, and pretty, though not effeminate. He has turquoise blue eyes, 
and a trick of looking you straight in the face with them, which, combined with a frank smile, is very engaging. Although he is all nerves, and very observant and quick of apprehension, he is not in the least shy. He is younger than Jennifer, but he patronizes her as a matter of course. The doctors do not put him out in the least. Either Sir Patrick's years nor Bloomfield Bonington's majesty have the smallest apparent effect on him. He is as natural as a cat. He moves among men as most men move among things, though he is intentionally making himself agreeable to them on this occasion. Like all people who can be depended on to take care of themselves, he is welcome company, and his artist's power of appealing to the imagination gains him credit for all sorts of qualities and powers, whether he possesses them or not. Lewis, pulling on his gloves behind Ridgeon's chair, now, Ginny Gwinny, the motor has come round. Ridgeon, why do you let him spoil your beautiful name like that, Mrs. Dubat? Mrs. Dubat, oh, on grand occasions I am Jennifer. B. B. You are a bachelor. You do not understand these things, Ridgeon. Look at me, they look. I also have two names. In moments of domestic worry, I am Simple Ralph. When the sun shines in the home, I am Beetle Deedle Dumpkins. Such is married life. Mr. Dubat, may I ask you to do me a favor before you go? Will you sign your name to this menu card, under the sketch you have made of me? Walpole. Yes and mine too, if you will be so good. Lewis. Certainly. He sits down and signs the cards. Mrs. Debat. Won't you sign D.R. Schutzmacher's for him, Lewis? Lewis. I don't think D.R. Schutzmacher is pleased with his portrait. I'll tear it up. He reaches across the table for Schutzmacher's menu card, and is about to tear it. Schutzmacher makes no sign. Ridgen. No, no. If Looney doesn't want it, I do. Lewis. I'll sign it for you with pleasure. He signs and hands it to Ridgen. Eve just been making a little note of the river tonight. It will work up into something good. He shoes a pocket sketchbook. I think I'll call it the Silver Danube. B. B. Ah, charming, charming. Walpole. Very sweet. You're a nailer at pastel. Lewis coughs, first out of modesty, then from tuberculosis. Sir Patrick. Now then, Mr. Dubat, you've had enough of the night air. Take him home, ma'am. Mrs. Dubat. Yes. Come, Lewis. Ridgen. Never fear. Never mind. I'll make that cough all right. B. B. We will stimulate the phagocytes. With tender effusion, shaking her hand, good night, Mrs. Dubat. Good night. Good night. Walpole. If the phagocytes fail, come to me. I'll put you right. Lewis. Good night, Sir Patrick. Happy to have met you. Sir Patrick. Night, half a grunt. Mrs. Debat. Good night, Sir Patrick. Sir Patrick. Cover yourself well up. Don't think your lungs are made of iron because they're better than his. Good night. Mrs. Debat. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing hurts me. Good night. Lewis goes out through the hotel without noticing Schutzmacher. Mrs. Dubat hesitates, then bows to him. Schutzmacher rises and bows formally, German fashion. She goes out, attended by Ridgen. The rest resume their seats, ruminating or smoking quietly. B. B. Harmoniously delightful couple. 
Charming woman. Gifted lad. Remarkable talent. Graceful outlines. Perfect evening. Great success. Interesting case. Glorious night. Exquisite scenery. Capital dinner. Stimulating conversation. Restful outing. Good wine. Happy ending. Touching gratitude. Lucky Ridgen. Ridgen returning, what's that? Calling me B. B. He goes back to his seat next Sir Patrick. B. B. No, no. Only congratulating you on a most successful evening. Enchanting woman. Thorough breeding. Gentle nature. Refined. Blenkinsop comes from the hotel and takes the empty chair next Ridgen. Blenkinsop. I'm so sorry to have left you like this, Ridgen, but it was a telephone message from the police. They've found half a milkman at our level crossing with a prescription of mine in its pocket. Where's Mr. Dubdat? Ridgen. Gone. Blenkinsop, rising, very pale, gone. Ridgen. Just this moment. Blenkinsop. Perhaps I could overtake him. He rushes into the hotel. Walpole, calling after him, he's in the motor, man, miles off. You can, giving it up. No use. Ridgen. They're really very nice people. I confess I was afraid the husband would turn out an appalling bounder. But he's almost as charming in his way as she is in hers. And there's no mistake about his being a genius. It's something to have got a case really worth saving. Somebody else will have to go, but at all events it will be easy to find a worse man. Sir Patrick. How do you know? Ridgen. Come now, Sir Patty, no growling. Have something more to drink. Sir Patrick. No, thank you. Walpole. Do you see anything wrong with Dubdat B? 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 Oh, a charming young fellow. Besides, after all, what could be wrong with him? Look at him. What could be wrong with him? Sir Patrick. There are two things that can be wrong with any man. One of them is a check. The other is a woman. Until you know that a man's sound on these two points, you know nothing about him. B. B. Ah, cynic, cynic. Walpole. He's all right as to the check, for a while at all events. He talked to me quite frankly before dinner as to the pressure of money difficulties on an artist. He says he has no vices and is very economical, but that there's one extravagance he can't afford and yet can't resist, and that is dressing his wife prettily. So I said, bang plump out, let me lend you twenty pounds and pay me when your ship comes home. He was really very nice about it. He took it like a man, and it was a pleasure to see how happy it made him, poor chap. B. B. Who has listened to Walpole with growing perturbation? But, 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 when was this, may I ask? Walpole. When I joined you that time down by the river. B. B. But my dear Walpole, he had just borrowed ten pounds from me. Walpole. What? Sir Patrick grunts. B. B. Indulgently. Well, well, it was really hardly borrowing, for he said heaven only knew when he could pay me. I couldn't refuse. It appears that Mrs. Dubdad has taken a sort of fancy to me. Walpole, quickly, no, it was to me. B, B, certainly not. Your name was never mentioned between us. He is so wrapped up in his work that he has to leave her a good deal alone, and the poor innocent young fellow, 
He has of course no idea of my position or how busy I am. Actually wanted me to call occasionally and talk to her. Walpole. Exactly what he said to me. B. B. Poo. Poo Poo. Really, I must say. Much disturbed, he rises and goes up to the balustrade, contemplating the landscape vexedly. Walpole. Look here, Ridgen. This is beginning to look serious. Blinkensop, very anxious and wretched, but trying to look unconcerned, comes back. Ridgen. Well, did you catch him? Blinkensop. No. Excuse my running away like that. He sits down at the foot of the table, next Bloomfeld Bonington's chair. Walpole. Anything the matter? Blinkensop. Oh no. A trifle. Something ridiculous. It can't be helped. Never mind. Ridgen. Was it anything about Dubdat? Blinkensop. Almost breaking down. I ought to keep it to myself, I know. I can't tell you, Ridgen, how ashamed I am of dragging my miserable poverty to your dinner after all your kindness. It's not that you won't ask me again, but it's so humiliating. And I did so look forward to one evening in my dress clothes, they're still presentable, you see, with all my troubles left behind, just like old times. Ridgen. But what has happened? Blinkensop. Oh, nothing. It's too ridiculous. I had just scraped up four shillings for this little outing, and it cost me one and fourpence to get here. Well, Dubdad asked me to lend him half a crown to tip the chambermaid of the room his wife left her wraps in, and for the cloakroom. He said he only wanted it for five minutes, as she had his purse. So of course I lent it to him. And he's forgotten to pay me. I've just tuppence to get back with. Ridgen. Oh, never mind that. Blenkinsop, stopping him resolutely, no, I know what you're going to say, but I won't take it. Eve never borrowed a penny, and I never will. Eve nothing left but my friends, and I won't sell them. If none of you were to be able to meet me without being afraid that my civility was leading up to the loan of five shillings, there would be an end of everything for me. I'll take your old clothes, Collie, sooner than disgrace you by talking to you in the street in my own, but I won't borrow money. I'll train it as far as the tuppence will take me, and I'll tramp the rest. Walpole. You'll do the whole distance in my motor. They are all greatly relieved, and Walpole hastens to get away from the painful subject by adding, Did he get anything out of you, Mr. Schutzmacher? Schutzmacher shakes his head in a most expressive negative. Walpole. You didn't appreciate his drawing, I think. Schutzmacher. Oh yes I did. I should have liked very much to have kept the sketch and got it autographed. B. B. But why didn't you? Schutzmacher. Well, the fact is, when I joined Dubdat after his conversation with Mr. Walpole, he said the Jews were the only people who knew anything about art, and that though he had to put up with your Philistine twaddle, as he called it, it was what I said about the drawings that really pleased him. He also said that his wife was greatly struck with my knowledge— and that she always admired Jews. Then he asked me to advance him fifty pounds on the security of the drawings. B. B. All no, no. Positively. Seriously. Walpole, exclaiming, What? Another fifty. Blinkensop, together, think of that. Sir Patrick grunts. Schutzmacher. Of course I couldn't lend money to a stranger like that. B. B. I envy you the power to say no, Mr. Schutzmacher. 
Of course, I knew I oughtn't to lend money to a young fellow in that way, but I simply hadn't the nerve to refuse. I couldn't very well, you know, could I? Schutzmacher. I don't understand that. I felt that I couldn't very well lend it. Walpole. What did he say? Schutzmacher. Well, he made a very uncalled-for remark about a Jew not understanding the feelings of a gentleman. I must say you Gentiles are very hard to please. You say we are no gentlemen when we lend money, and when we refuse to lend it you say just the same. I didn't mean to behave badly. As I told him, I might have lent it to him if he had been a Jew himself. Sir Patrick, with a grunt, and what did he say to that? Schutzmacher. Oh, he began trying to persuade me that he was one of the chosen people, that his artistic faculty shewed it, and that his name was as foreign as my own. He said he didn't really want fifty pounds, that he was only joking, that all he wanted was a couple of sovereigns. B. B. No, no, Mr. Schutzmacher. You invented that last touch. Seriously, now? Schutzmacher. No. You can't improve on nature in telling stories about gentlemen like Mr. Dubdat. Blinkensop. You certainly do stand by one another, you chosen people, Mr. Schutzmacher. Schutzmacher. Not at all. Personally, I like Englishmen better than Jews, and always associate with them. That's only natural, because, as I am a Jew, there's nothing interesting in a Jew to me, whereas there is always something interesting and foreign in an Englishman but in money matters it's quite different. You see, when an Englishman borrows, all he knows or cares is that he wants money, and he'll sign anything to get it, without in the least understanding it, or intending to carry out the agreement if it turns out badly for him. In fact, he thinks you a cad if you ask him to carry it out under such circumstances. Just like the merchant of Venice, you know. But if a Jew makes an agreement, he means to keep it, and expects you to keep it. If he wants money for a time, he borrows it, and knows he must pay it at the end of the time. If he knows he can't pay, he begs it as a gift. Rigen. Come, Looney. Do you mean to say that Jews are never rogues and thieves? Schutzmacher. Oh, not at all. But I was not talking of criminals. I was comparing honest Englishmen with honest Jews. One of the hotel maids, a pretty, fair-haired woman of about twenty-five, comes from the hotel, rather furtively. She accosts Ridgen. The maid. I beg your pardon, sir. Ridgen. Eh? The maid. I beg pardon, sir. It's not about the hotel. I'm not allowed to be on the terrace, and I should be discharged if I were seen speaking to you, unless you were kind enough to say you called me to ask whether the motor has come back from the station yet. Walpole. Has it? The maid. Yes, sir. Ridgen. Well, what do you want? The maid. Would you mind, sir, giving me the address of the gentleman that was with you at dinner? Ridgen, sharply, yes, of course I should mind very much. You have no right to ask. The maid. Yes, sir, I know it looks like that. But what am I to do? Sir Patrick. What's the matter with you? The maid. Nothing, sir. I want the address, that's all. B. B. You mean the young gentleman? The maid. Yes, sir. That went to catch the train with the woman he brought with him. Ridgen. The woman. Do you mean the lady who dined here? The gentleman's wife? The maid. Don't believe them, 
sir. She can't be his wife. I'm his wife. B. B. In amazed remonstrance, my good girl. Ridgen, you his wife. Walpole, what? What's that? Oh, this is getting perfectly fascinating, Ridgen. The maid. I could run upstairs and get you my marriage lines in a minute, sir, if you doubt my word. He's Mr. Louis Dubdat, isn't he? Ridgen. Yes. The maid. Well, sir, you may believe me or not, but I'm the lawful Mrs. Dubdat. Sir Patrick. And why aren't you living with your husband? The maid. We couldn't afford it, sir. I had thirty pounds saved, and we spent it all on our honeymoon in three weeks, and a lot more that he borrowed. Then I had to go back into service, and he went to London to get work at his drawing, and he never wrote me a line or sent me an address. I never saw nor heard of him again until I caught sight of him from the window going off in the motor with that woman. Sir Patrick. Well, that's two wives to start with. B. B. Now upon my soul I don't want to be uncharitable, but really I'm beginning to suspect that our young friend is rather careless. Sir Patrick. Beginning to think. How long will it take you, man, to find out that he's a damned young blackguard? Blinkensop. Oh, that's severe, Sir Patrick, very severe. Of course it's bigamy, but still he's very young, and she's very pretty. Mr. Walpole, may I sponge on you for another of those nice cigarettes of yours? He changes his seat for the one next Walpole. Walpole. Certainly. He feels in his pockets. Oh, bother! Where? Suddenly remembering, I say, I recollect now, I passed my cigarette case to Dubdat, and he didn't return it. It was a gold one. The maid. He didn't mean any harm. He never thinks about things like that, sir. I'll get it back for you, sir, if you'll tell me where to find him. Ridgen. What am I to do? Shall I give her the address or not? Sir Patrick. Give her your own address, and then we'll see. To the maid, you'll have to be content with that for the present, my girl. Ridgen gives her his card. What's your name? The maid. Minnie Tinwell, sir. Sir Patrick. Well, you write him a letter to care of this gentleman, and it will be sent on. Now be off with you. The maid. Thank you, sir. I'm sure you wouldn't see me wrong. Thank you all, gentlemen, and excuse the liberty. She goes into the hotel. They watch her in silence. Ridgen, when she is gone, do you realize, chaps, that we have promised Mrs. Dubdat to save this fellow's life? Blinkensop. What's the matter with him? Ridgen. Tuberculosis. Blinkensop, interested. And can you cure that? Ridgen. I believe so. Blinkensop. Then I wish you'd cure me. My right lung is touched, I'm sorry to say. Ridgen, altogether, what? Your lung is going? Be dot be, my dear Blinkensop. What do you tell me? Full of concern for Blinkensop, he comes back from the balustrade. Sir Patrick, eh? Eh? What's that? Walpole, hello, you mustn't neglect this, you know. Blinkensop, putting his fingers in his ears, no, no, it's no use. I know what you're going to say, Eve said it often to others. I can't afford to take care of myself, and there's an end of it. If a fortnight's holiday would save my life, I'd have to die. I shall get on as others have to get on. We can't all go to S.D. Moritz or to Egypt, you know, Sir Ralph.
Don't talk about it. Embarrassed silence. Sir Patrick grunts and looks hard at Ridgen. Schutzmacher, looking at his watch and rising, I must go. It's been a very pleasant evening, Kali. You might let me have my portrait if you don't mind. I'll send Mr. Dubdat that couple of sovereigns for it. Ridgen, giving him the menu card. Oh, don't do that, Looney. I don't think he'd like that. Schutzmacher. Well, of course I shan't if you feel that way about it. But I don't think you understand Dubdat. However, perhaps that's because I'm a Jew. Good night, dear Blenkinsop, shaking hands. Blenkinsop. Good night, sir. I mean, good night. Schutzmacher, waving his hand to the rest. Good night, everybody. Walpole B. B. Sir Patrick, Ridgen, good night. B. B. repeats the salutation several times, in very musical tones. Schutzmacher goes out. Sir Patrick. It's time for us all to move. He rises and comes between Blenkinsop and Walpole. Ridgen also rises. Mr. Walpole, take Blenkinsop home. He's had enough of the open-air cure for tonight. Have you a thick overcoat to wear in the motor, dear Blenkinsop? Blenkinsop. Oh, they'll give me some brown paper in the hotel, and a few thicknesses of brown paper across the chest are better than any fur coat. Walpole. Well, come along. Good night, Collie. You're coming with us, aren't you, B? 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 Yes, I'm coming. Walpole and Blenkinsop go into the hotel. Good night, my dear Ridgen, shaking hands affectionately. Don't let us lose sight of your interesting patient and his very charming wife. We must not judge him too hastily, you know. With unction, G-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-
You've to hold the scales between Blankensop and Dubdat. Hold them fairly. Ridgen. Well, I'll be as fair as I can. I'll put into one scale all the pounds Dubdat has borrowed, and into the other all the half-crowns that Blankensop hasn't borrowed. Sir Patrick. And you'll take out of Dubdat's scale all the faith he has destroyed and the honor he has lost, and you'll put into Blankensop's scale all the faith he has justified and the honor he has created. Ridgen. Come, come, Patty. None of your claptrap with me. I'm too skeptical for it. I'm not at all convinced that the world wouldn't be a better world if everybody behaved as Dubdat does than it is now that everybody behaves as Blankensop does. Sir Patrick. Then why don't you behave as Dubdat does? Ridgen. Ah, that beats me. That's the experimental test. Still, it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. You see there's a complication we haven't mentioned. Sir Patrick. What's that? Ridgen. Well, if I let Blankensop die, at least nobody can say I did it because I wanted to marry his widow. Sir Patrick. Eh? What's that? Ridgen. Now if I let Dubdad die, I'll marry his widow. Sir Patrick. Perhaps she won't have you, you know. Ridgen, with a self-assured shake of the head, I've a pretty good flair for that sort of thing. I know when a woman is interested in me. She is. Sir Patrick. Well, sometimes a man knows best, and sometimes he knows worst. You'd much better cure them both. Ridgen. I can't. I'm at my limit. I can squeeze in one more case, but not two. I must choose. Sir Patrick. Well, you must choose as if she didn't exist, that's clear. Ridgen. Is that clear to you? Mind, it's not clear to me. She troubles my judgment. Sir Patrick. To me, it's a plain choice between a man and a lot of pictures. Ridgen. It's easier to replace a dead man than a good picture. Sir Patrick. Collie, when you live in an age that runs to pictures and statues and plays and brass bands because its men and women are not good enough to comfort its poor aching soul, you should thank Providence that you belong to a profession which is a high and great profession because its business is to heal and mend men and women. Ridgen. In short, as a member of a high and great profession, I'm to kill my patient. Sir Patrick. Don't talk wicked nonsense. You can't kill him. But you can leave him in other hands. Ridgen. In B. B.S., for instance, eh? Looking at him significantly. Sir Patrick, demurely facing his look, Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington is a very eminent physician. Ridgen. He is. Sir Patrick. I'm going for my hat. Ridgen strikes the bell as Sir Patrick makes for the hotel. A waiter comes. Ridgen, to the waiter, my bill, please. Waiter. Yes, sir. He goes for it. Act 3. In Dubdat's studio. Viewed from the large window the outer door is in the wall on the left at the near end. The door leading to the inner rooms is in the opposite wall at the far end. The facing wall has neither window nor door. The plaster on all the walls is uncovered and undecorated, except by scrawlings of charcoal sketches and memoranda. There is a studio throne, a chair on a dais, a little to the left, opposite the inner door, and an easel to the right, opposite the outer door, with a dilapidated chair at it. Near the easel and against the wall is a bare wooden table with bottles and jars of oil and medium, 
paint-smudged rags, tubes of color, brushes, charcoal, a small lay figure, a kettle and spirit lamp, and other odds and ends. By the table is a sofa, littered with drawing blocks, sketchbooks, loose sheets of paper, newspapers, books, and more smudged rags. Next the outer door is an umbrella and hat stand, occupied partly by Lewis's hats and cloak and muffler, and partly by odds and ends of costumes. There is an old piano stool on the near side of this door. In the corner near the inner door is a little tea table. A lay figure, in a cardinal's robe and hat, with an hourglass in one hand and a side slung on its back, smiles with a name malice at Lewis, who, in a milkman's smock much smudged with colors, is painting a piece of brocade which he has draped about his wife. She is sitting on the throne, not interested in the painting, and appealing to him very anxiously about another matter. Mrs. Debat. Promise. Lewis, putting on a touch of paint with notable skill and care and answering quite perfunctorily, I promise, my darling. Mrs. Debat. When you want money, you will always come to me. Lewis. But it's so sordid, dearest. I hate money. I can't keep always bothering you for money, money, money. That's what drives me sometimes to ask other people, though I hate doing it. Mrs. Debat. It is far better to ask me, dear. It gives people a wrong idea of you. Lewis. But I want to spare your little fortune and raise money on my own work. Don't be unhappy, love. I can easily earn enough to pay it all back. I shall have a one-man show next season, and then there will be no more money troubles. Putting down his palette there. I mustn't do any more on that until it's bone dry, so you may come down. Mrs. Dubdat, throwing off the drapery as she steps down, and revealing a plain frock of tussor silk. But you have promised, remember, seriously and faithfully, never to borrow again until you have first asked me. Lewis. Seriously and faithfully. Embracing her, ah, my love, how right you are. How much it means to me to have you by me to guard me against living too much in the skies. On my solemn oath, from this moment forth I will never borrow another penny. Mrs. Dubat delighted, ah, that's right. Does his wicked worrying wife torment him and drag him down from the clouds? She kisses him. And now, dear, won't you finish those drawings for McLean? Lewis. Oh, they don't matter. Eve got nearly all the money from him in advance. Mrs. Debat. But, dearest, that is just the reason why you should finish them. He asked me the other day whether you really intended to finish them. Lewis. Confound his impudence. What the devil does he take me for? Now that just destroys all my interest in the beastly job. Eve a good mind to throw up the commission and pay him back his money. Mrs. Debat. We can't afford that, dear. You had better finish the drawings and have done with them. I think it is a mistake to accept money in advance. Lewis. But how are we to live? Mrs. Debat. Well, Lewis, it is getting hard enough as it is, now that they are all refusing to pay except on delivery. Lewis. Damn those fellows. They think of nothing and care for nothing but their wretched money. Mrs. Debat. Still, if they pay us, they ought to have what they pay for. Lewis, coaxing there now, that's enough lecturing for today. Eve promised to be good, haven't I? Mrs. Dubat, putting her arms round his neck, you know that I hate lecturing, and that I don't for a moment misunderstand you, dear, don't you? 
Louis fondly, I know. I know. I'm a wretch, and you're an angel. Oh, if only I were strong enough to work steadily, I'd make my darling's house a temple, and her shrine a chapel more beautiful than was ever imagined. I can't pass the shops without wrestling with the temptation to go in and order all the really good things they have for you. Mrs. Debat. I want nothing but you, dear. She gives him a caress, to which he responds so passionately that she disengages herself. There. Be good now. Remember that the doctors are coming this morning. Isn't it extraordinarily kind of them, Louis, to insist on coming? All of them, to consult about you? Louis coolly, oh, I dare say they think it will be a feather in their cap to cure a rising artist. They wouldn't come if it didn't amuse them, anyhow. Someone knocks at the door. I say, it's not time yet, is it? Mrs. Dubat. No, not quite yet. Louis, opening the door and finding Ridgen there, hello, Ridgen. Delighted to see you. Come in. Mrs. Dubat, shaking hands, it's so good of you to come, doctor. Louis. Excuse this place, won't you? It's only a studio, you know, there's no real convenience for living here. But we pig along somehow, thanks to Jennifer. Mrs. Debat. Now I'll run away. Perhaps later on, when you're finished with Lewis, I may come in and hear the verdict. Ridgen bows rather constrainedly. Would you rather I didn't? Ridgen. Not at all. Not at all. Mrs. Debat looks at him a little puzzled by his formal manner, then goes into the inner room. Lewis, flippantly, I say, don't look so grave. There's nothing awful going to happen, is there? Ridgen. No. Lewis. That's all right. Poor Jennifer has been looking forward to your visit more than you can imagine. She's taken quite a fancy to you, Ridgen. The poor girl has nobody to talk to, I'm always painting. Taking up a sketch, there's a little sketch I made of her yesterday. Ridgen. She shoot it to me a fortnight ago when she first called on me. Lewis, quite unabashed, oh. Did she? Good Lord. How time does fly. I could have sworn I'd only just finished it. It's hard for her here, seeing me piling up drawings and nothing coming in for them. Of course I shall sell them next year fast enough, after my one-man show but while the grass grows the steed starves. I hate to have her coming to me for money, and having none to give her. But what can I do? Ridgen. I understood that Mrs. Dubdat had some property of her own. Lewis. Oh yes, a little. But how could a man with any decency of feeling touch that? Suppose I did, what would she have to live on if I died? I'm not insured, can't afford the premiums. Picking out another drawing— how do you like that? Ridgen, putting it aside, I have not come here today to look at your drawings. I have more serious and pressing business with you. Lewis, you want to sound my wretched lung. With impulsive candor, my dear Ridgen, I'll be frank with you. What's the matter in this house isn't lungs but bills. It doesn't matter about me, but Jennifer has actually to economize in the matter of food. You've made us feel that we can treat you as a friend. Will you lend us a hundred and fifty pounds? Ridgen. No. Lewis, surprised, why not? Ridgen. I am not a rich man, and I want every penny I can spare and more for my researches. Lewis. You mean you'd want the money back again? Ridgen. I presume people sometimes have that in view when they lend money. 
Lewis, after a moment's reflection, well, I can manage that for you. I'll give you a check, or see here, there's no reason why you shouldn't have your bit too, I'll give you a check for two hundred. Ridgen. Why not cash the check at once without troubling me? Lewis. Bless you. They wouldn't cash it, I'm overdrawn as it is. No, the way to work it is this. I'll post-date the check next October. In October Jennifer's dividends come in. Well, you present the check. It will be returned marked. Referred to drawer. Or some rubbish of that sort. Then you can take it to Jennifer. And hint that if the check isn't taken up at once I shall be put in prison. She'll pay you like a shot. You'll clear fifty pounds. And you'll do me a real service. For I do want the money very badly. Old chap, I assure you. Ridgen, staring at him. You see no objection to the transaction. And you anticipate none from me. Lewis. Well, what objection can there be? It's quite safe. I can convince you about the dividends. Ridgen. I mean on the score of its being, shall I say dishonorable? Lewis. Well, of course I shouldn't suggest it if I didn't want the money. Ridgen. Indeed. Well, you will have to find some other means of getting it. Lewis. Do you mean that you refuse? Ridgen. Do I mean... Letting his indignation loose, of course I refuse, man. What do you take me for? How dare you make such a proposal to me? Lewis. Why not? Ridgen. Fall. You would not understand me if I tried to explain. Now, once for all, I will not lend you a farthing. I should be glad to help your wife, but lending you money is no service to her. Lewis. Oh, well, if you're in earnest about helping her. I'll tell you what you might do. You might get your patients to buy some of my things, or to give me a few portrait commissions. Ridgen. My patients call me in as a physician, not as a commercial traveler. A knock at the door. Lewis goes unconcernedly to open it, pursuing the subject as he goes. Lewis. But you must have great influence with them. You must know such lots of things about them, private things that they wouldn't like to have known. They wouldn't dare to refuse you. Ridgen, exploding well upon my. Lewis opens the door and admits Sir Patrick, Sir Ralph, and Walpole. Ridgen, proceeding furiously, Walpole, Eve been here hardly ten minutes, and already he's tried to borrow one hundred and fifty pounds from me. Then he proposed that I should get the money for him by blackmailing his wife, and you've just interrupted him in the act of suggesting that I should blackmail my patients into sitting to him for their portraits. Lewis. Well, Ridgen, if this is what you call being an honorable man. I spoke to you in confidence. Sir Patrick. We're all going to speak to you in confidence, young man. Walpole, hanging his hat on the only peg left vacant on the hat stand, we shall make ourselves at home for half an hour, Dibdat. Don't be alarmed, you're a most fascinating chap, and we love you. Lewis. Oh, all right, all right. Sit down anywhere you can. Take this chair, Sir Patrick, indicating the one on the throne. Up ZZZ. Helping him up, Sir Patrick grunts and enthrones himself. Here you are, B. B. Sir Ralph glares at the familiarity, but Lewis, quite undisturbed, puts a big book and a sofa cushion on the dais, on Sir Patrick's right, and B. B. Sits down, under protest. Let me take your hat. He takes B. B.S. hat unceremoniously, 
and substitutes it for the cardinal's hat on the head of the lay figure, thereby ingeniously destroying the dignity of the conclave. He then draws the piano stool from the wall and offers it to Walpole. You don't mind this, Walpole, do you? Walpole accepts the stool and puts his hand into his pocket for his cigarette case. Missing it, he is reminded of his loss. Walpole. By the way, I'll trouble you for my cigarette case, if you don't mind. Lewis. What cigarette case? Walpole. The gold one I lent you at the Star and Garter. Lewis, surprised, was that yours? Walpole. Yes. Lewis. I'm awfully sorry. Old Chapter One wondered whose it was. I'm sorry to say this is all that's left of it. He hitches up his smock, produces a card from his waistcoat pocket, and hands it to Walpole. Walpole. A pawn ticket. Lewis, reassuringly, it's quite safe. He can't sell it for a year, you know. I say, my dear Walpole, I am sorry. He places his hand ingenuously on Walpole's shoulder and looks frankly at him. Walpole, sinking on the stool with a gasp, don't mention it. It adds to your fascination. Ridgen, who has been standing near the easel, before we go any further, you have a debt to pay, Mr. Dubdat. Lewis. I have a precious lot of debts to pay, Ridgen. I'll fetch you a chair. He makes for the inner door. Ridgen, stopping him, you shall not leave the room until you pay it. It's a small one, and pay it you must and shall. I don't so much mind your borrowing ten pounds from one of my guests and twenty pounds from the other. Walpole. I walked into it, you know. I offered it. Ridgen dot, they could afford it. But to clean poor Blenkinsop out of his last half-crown was damnable. I intend to give him that half-crown and to be in a position to pledge him my word that you paid it. I'll have that out of you, at all events. B. B. Quite right, Ridgen. Quite right. Come, young man. Down with the dust. Pay up. Lewis. Oh, you needn't make such a fuss about it. Of course I'll pay it. I had no idea the poor fellow was hard up. I'm as shocked as any of you about it. Putting his hand into his pocket, here you are. Finding his pocket empty, oh, I say, I haven't any money on me just at present. Walpole, would you mind lending me half a crown just to settle this? Walpole, lend you half, his voice faints away. Lewis, well, if you don't, Blenkinsop won't get it, for I haven't a wrap. You may search my pockets if you like. Walpole, that's conclusive. He produces half a crown. Lewis, passing it to Ridgen there. I'm really glad that's settled. It was the only thing that was on my conscience. Now I hope you're all satisfied. Sir Patrick. Not quite, Mr. Dubdat. Do you happen to know a young woman named Minnie Tiwell? Lewis. Minnie. I should think I do, and Minnie knows me too. She's a really nice good girl, considering her station. What's become of her? Walpole. It's no use bluffing, Dubdat. We've seen Minnie's marriage lines. Lewis, coolly indeed? Have you seen Jennifer's? Ridgen, rising in irrepressible rage, do you dare insinuate that Mrs. Dubdat is living with you without being married to you? Lewis. Why not? B. B. Echoing him in, why not? Sir Patrick, various tones of, why not? Ridgen, scandalized, why not? Walpole, amazement, why not? Lewis. Yes, why not? 
Lots of people do it, just as good people as you. Why don't you learn to think, instead of bleeding and bashing like a lot of sheep when you come up against anything you're not accustomed to? Contemplating their amazed faces with a chuckle, I say, I should like to draw the lot of you now. You do look jolly foolish. Especially you, Ridgen. I had you that time, you know. Ridgen. How, pray? Lewis. Well, you set up to appreciate Jennifer, you know. And you despise me, don't you? Ridgen curtly, I loathe you. He sits down again on the sofa. Lewis. Just so. And yet you believe that Jennifer is a bad lot because you think I told you so. Ridgen. Were you lying? Lewis. No, but you were smelling out a scandal instead of keeping your mind clean and wholesome. I can just play with people like you. I only asked you had you seen Jennifer's marriage lines, and you concluded straight away that she hadn't got any. You don't know a lady when you see one. B. B. Majestically, what do you mean by that, may I ask? Lewis. Now, I'm only an immoral artist, but if you told me that Jennifer wasn't married, I'd have had the gentlemanly feeling and artistic instinct to say that she carried her marriage certificate in her face and in her character. But you are all moral men, and Jennifer is only an artist's wife, probably a model, and morality consists in suspecting other people of not being legally married. Aren't you ashamed of yourselves? Can one of you look me in the face after it? Walpole. It's very hard to look you in the face, Dubdat. You have such a dazzling cheek. What about Minnie Tinwell, eh? Lewis. Minnie Tinwell is a young woman who has had three weeks of glorious happiness in her poor little life, which is more than most girls in her position get, I can tell you. Ask her whether she'd take it back if she could. She's got her name into history, that girl. My little sketches of her will be bought by collectors at Christie's. She'll have a page in my biography. Pretty good, that, for a still room made at a seaside hotel, I think. What have you fellows done for her to compare with that? Ridgen. We haven't trapped her into a mock marriage and deserted her. Lewis. No, you wouldn't have the pluck. But don't fuss yourselves. I didn't desert little Minnie. We spent all our money. Walpole. All her money. Thirty pounds. Lewis. I said all our money. Hers and mine too. Her thirty pounds didn't last three days. I had to borrow four times as much to spend on her. But I didn't grudge it, and she didn't grudge her few pounds either, the brave little lassie. When we were cleaned out, we'd had enough of it. You can hardly suppose that we were fit company for longer than that. I an artist, and she quite out of art and literature and refined living and everything else. There was no desertion, no misunderstanding, no police court or divorce court sensation for you moral chaps to lick your lips over at breakfast. We just said, well, the money's gone, we've had a good time that can never be taken from us, so kiss, part good friends, and she back to service, and I back to my studio and my Jennifer, both the better and happier for our holiday. Walpole. Quite a little poem, by George. B. B. If you had been scientifically trained, Mr. Dubdat, you would know how very seldom an actual case bears out a principle. In medical practice a man may die when, scientifically speaking, he ought to have lived. I have actually known a man die of a disease from which he was scientifically speaking, immune. But that does not affect the fundamental truth of science. In just the same way, in moral cases, 
A man's behavior may be quite harmless and even beneficial when he is morally behaving like a scoundrel, and he may do great harm when he is morally acting on the highest principles. But that does not affect the fundamental truth of morality, Sir Patrick, and it doesn't affect the criminal law on the subject of bigamy. Lewis. Oh, bigamy. 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 What a fascination anything connected with the police has for you all, you moralists. Eve proved to you that you were utterly wrong on the moral point. Now I'm going to show you that you're utterly wrong on the legal point. And I hope it will be a lesson to you not to be so jolly cocksure next time. Walpole. Rot. You were married already when you married her, and that settles it. Lewis. Does it? Why can't you think? How do you know she wasn't married already too? B.B. All Walpole. Ridgen. Ridgen crying. This is beyond everything. Walpole out. Well, damn me. Sir Patrick, together, you young rascal. Lewis, ignoring their outcry, she was married to the steward of a liner. He cleared out and left her. And she thought, poor girl, that it was the law that if you hadn't heard of your husband for three years you might marry again. So as she was a thoroughly respectable girl and refused to have anything to say to me unless we were married I went through the ceremony to please her and to preserve her self-respect. Ridgen. Did you tell her you were already married? Lewis. Of course not. Don't you see that if she had known, she wouldn't have considered herself my wife? You don't seem to understand somehow. Sir Patrick. You let her risk imprisonment in her ignorance of the law? Lewis. Well, I risked imprisonment for her sake. I could have been had up for it just as much as she. But when a man makes a sacrifice of that sort for a woman, he doesn't go and brag about it to her. At least, not if he's a gentleman. Walpole. What are we to do with this daisy? Lewis. Impatiently, oh, go and do whatever the devil you please. Put Minnie in prison. Put me in prison. Kill Jennifer with the disgrace of it all. And then... When you've done all the mischief you can, go to church and feel good about it. He sits down pettishly on the old chair at the easel, and takes up a sketching block, on which he begins to draw. Walpole. He's got us. Sir Patrick grimly, he has. B. B. But is he to be allowed to defy the criminal law of the land? Sir Patrick. The criminal law is no use to decent people. It only helps blackguards to blackmail their families. What are we family doctors doing half our time but conspiring with the family solicitor to keep some rascal out of jail, and some family out of disgrace? B. B. But at least it will punish him. Sir Patrick. Oh, yes, ITLL punish him. ITLL punish not only him but everybody connected with him, innocent and guilty alike. ITLL throw his board and lodging on our rates and taxes for a couple of years and then turn him loose on us a more dangerous blackguard than ever. ITLL put the girl in prison and ruin her. ITLL lay his wife's life waste. You may put the criminal law out of your head once for all. It's only fit for fools and savages. Lewis. Would you mind turning your face a little more this way, Sir Patrick? Sir Patrick turns indignantly and glares at him. Oh, that's too much. Sir Patrick. Put down your foolish pencil man, and think of your position. You can defy the laws made by men, but there are other laws to reckon with. Do you know that you're going to die? Lewis. 
We're all going to die, aren't we? Walpole. We're not all going to die in six months. Lewis. How do you know? This for B. B is the last straw. He completely loses his temper and begins to walk excitedly about. B. B. Upon my soul, I will not stand this. It is in questionable taste under any circumstances or in any company to harp on the subject of death, but it is a dastardly advantage to take of a medical man. Thundering at Dubdat, I will not allow it, do you hear? Lewis. Well, I didn't begin it, you chaps did. It's always the way with the inartistic professions. When they're beaten in argument they fall back on intimidation. I never knew a lawyer who didn't threaten to put me in prison sooner or later. I never knew a parson who didn't threaten me with damnation. And now you threaten me with death. With all your talk you've only one real trump in your hand, and that's intimidation. Well, I'm not a coward, so it's no use with me. B. B. Advancing upon him, I'll tell you what you are, sir. You're a scoundrel. Lewis. Oh, I don't mind you calling me a scoundrel a bit. It's only a word, a word that you don't know the meaning of. What is a scoundrel? B. B. You are a scoundrel, sir. Lewis. Just so. What is a scoundrel? I am. What am I? A scoundrel. It's just arguing in a circle. And you imagine you're a man of science. B. B. I. 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 I have a good mind to take you by the scruff of your neck, you infamous rascal, and give you a sound thrashing. Lewis. I wish you would. You'd pay me something handsome to keep it out of court afterwards. B. B. Baffled, flings away from him with a snort. Have you any more civilities to address to me in my own house? I should like to get them over before my wife comes back. He resumes his sketching. Ridgen. My mind's made up. When the law breaks down, honest men must find a remedy for themselves. I will not lift a finger to save this reptile. B. B. That is the word I was trying to remember. Reptile. Walpole. I can't help rather liking you, Dubdat. But you certainly are a thoroughgoing specimen. Sir Patrick. You know our opinion of you now, at all events. Lewis, patiently putting down his pencil, look here. All this is no good. You don't understand. You imagine that I'm simply an ordinary criminal. Walpole. Not an ordinary one, Dubdat. Do yourself justice. Lewis. Well, you're on the wrong tack altogether. I'm not a criminal. All your moralizings have no value for me. I don't believe in morality. I'm a disciple of Bernard Shaw. Sir Patrick puzzled eh? B.B., waving his hand as if the subject was now disposed of, that's enough, I wish to hear no more. Lewis. Of course I haven't the ridiculous vanity to set up to be exactly a superman, but still, it's an ideal that I strive towards just as any other man strives towards his ideal. B. B. Intolerant, don't trouble to explain. I now understand you perfectly. Say no more, please. When a man pretends to discuss science, morals, and religion, and then avows himself a follower of a notorious and avowed anti-vaccinationist, there is nothing more to be said. Suddenly putting in an effusive saving clause in parenthesis to Ridgen, not my dear Ridgen, that I believe in vaccination in the popular sense any more than you do. I needn't tell you that. But there are things that place a man socially, and anti-vaccination is one of them. 
He resumes his seat on the dais. Sir Patrick. Bernard Shaw? I never heard of him. He's a Methodist preacher, I suppose. Lewis, scandalized, no, no. He's the most advanced man now living. He isn't anything. Sir Patrick. I assure you, young man, my father learnt the doctrine of deliverance from sin from John Wesley's own lips before you or Mr. Shaw were born. It used to be very popular as an excuse for putting sand in sugar and water in milk. You're a sound Methodist, my lad. Only you don't know it. Lewis, seriously annoyed for the first time, it's an intellectual insult. I don't believe there's such a thing as sin. Sir Patrick. Well, sir, there are people who don't believe there's such a thing as disease either. They call themselves Christian scientists, I believe. They'll just suit your complaint. We can do nothing for you. He rises. Good afternoon to you. Lewis, running to him piteously, oh, don't get up, Sir Patrick. Don't go. Please don't. I didn't mean to shock you on my word. Do sit down again. Give me another chance. Two minutes more, that's all I ask. Sir Patrick, surprised by this sign of grace, and a little touched, well, he sits down. Lewis, gratefully, thanks awfully. Sir Patrick, continuing, I don't mind giving you two minutes more. But don't address yourself to me, for I've retired from practice, and I don't pretend to be able to cure your complaint. Your life is in the hands of these gentlemen. Ridgen. Not in mine. My hands are full. I have no time and no means available for this case. Sir Patrick. What do you say, Mr. Walpole? Walpole. Oh, I'll take him in hand. I don't mind. I feel perfectly convinced that this is not a moral case at all. It's a physical one. There's something abnormal about his brain. That means, probably, some morbid condition affecting the spinal cord. And that means the circulation. In short, it's clear to me that he's suffering from an obscure form of blood poisoning, which is almost certainly due to an accumulation of tomains in the nusiform sac. I'll remove the sac. Lewis, changing color, do you mean, operate on me? Ugh. No, thank you. Walpole. Never fear, you won't feel anything. You'll be under an anesthetic, of course. And it will be extraordinarily interesting. Lewis. Oh, well, if it would interest you, and if it won't hurt, that's another matter. How much will you give me to let you do it? Walpole, rising indignantly, how much? What do you mean? Lewis. Well, you don't expect me to let you cut me up for nothing, do you? Walpole. Will you paint my portrait for nothing? Lewis. No but I'll give you the portrait when it's painted, and you can sell it afterwards for perhaps double the money. But I can't sell my nusiform sack when you've cut it out. Walpole. Ridgen, did you ever hear anything like this? To Lewis, well, you can keep your nusiform sack, and your tubercular lung, and your diseased brain, eve done with you. One would think I was not conferring a favor on the fellow. He returns to his stool in high dudgeon. Sir Patrick. That leaves only one medical man who has not withdrawn from your case, Mr. Dubdat. You have nobody left to appeal to now but Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. Walpole. If I were you, B. B., I shouldn't touch him with a pair of tongs. Let him take his lungs to the Brompton Hospital. They won't cure him, but they'll teach him manners. B. B., 
My weakness is that I have never been able to say no, even to the most thoroughly undeserving people. Besides, I am bound to say that I don't think it is possible in medical practice to go into the question of the value of the lives we save. Just consider, Ridgen. Let me put it to you, Patty. Clear your mind of Kant, Walpole. Walpole, indignantly, my mind is clear of Kant. B. B. Quite so. Well now, look at my practice. It is what I suppose you would call a fashionable practice, a smart practice, a practice among the best people. You ask me to go into the question of whether my patients are of any use either to themselves or anyone else. Well, if you apply any scientific test known to me, you will achieve a reductio ad absurdum. You will be driven to the conclusion that the majority of them would be, as my friend Mr. J. M. Barry has tersely phrased it, better dead. Better dead. There are exceptions, no doubt. For instance, there is the court, an essentially social democratic institution, supported out of public funds by the public because the public wants it and likes it. My court patients are hardworking people who give satisfaction, undoubtedly. Then I have a duke or two whose estates are probably better managed than they would be in public hands. But as to most of the rest, if I once began to argue about them, unquestionably the verdict would be, better dead. When they actually do die, I sometimes have to offer that consolation, thinly disguised, to the family. Lulled by the cadences of his own voice, he becomes drowsier and drowsier. The fact that they spend money so extravagantly on medical attendance really would not justify me in wasting my talents, such as they are, in keeping them alive. After all, if my fees are high, I have to spend heavily. My own tastes are simple. A camp bed, a couple of rooms, a crust, a bottle of wine, and I am happy and contented. My wife's tastes are perhaps more luxurious but even she deplores an expenditure the sole object of which is to maintain the state my patients require from their medical attendant. The er, 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 suddenly waking up, I have lost the thread of these remarks. What was I talking about, Ridgen? Ridgen. About Dubdat. B-B-I-S. Precisely. Thank you. Dubdat, of course. Well, what is our friend Dubdat? A vicious and ignorant young man with a talent for drawing. Lewis. Thank you. Don't mind me. B. B. But then, what are many of my patients? Vicious and ignorant young men without a talent for anything. If I were to stop to argue about their merits I should have to give up three quarters of my practice. Therefore I have made it a rule not so to argue. Now, as an honorable man, having made that rule as to paying patients, can I make an exception as to a patient who, far from being a paying patient, may more fitly be described as a borrowing patient? No, I say no. Mr. Dubdat, your moral character is nothing to me. I look at you from a purely scientific point of view. To me you are simply a field of battle in which an invading army of tubercle bacilli struggles with a patriotic force of phagocytes. Having made a promise to your wife, which my principles will not allow me to break, to stimulate those phagocytes, I will stimulate them and I take no further responsibility. He digs himself back in his seat exhausted. Sir Patrick. Well, Mr. Dubdat, as Sir Ralph has very kindly offered to take charge of your case, and as the two minutes I promise you are up, I must ask you to excuse me. He rises. Louis. Oh, certainly. You've a quite done with you. Rising and holding up the sketch block there. 
while you've been talking, Eve been doing. What is there left of your moralizing? Only a little carbonic acid gas which makes the room unhealthy. What is there left of my work? That. Look at it. Ridgen rises to look at it. Sir Patrick, who has come down to him from the throne, ye young rascal, was it drawing me you were? Lewis. Of course. What else? Sir Patrick takes the drawing from him and grunts approvingly. That's rather good. Don't you think so, Lolly? Ridgen. Yes. So good that I should like to have it. Sir Patrick. Thank you. But I should like to have it myself. What do you think, Walpole? Walpole, rising and coming over to look. No, by Jove, I must have this. Lewis. I wish I could afford to give it to you, Sir Patrick. But I'd pay five guineas sooner than part with it. Ridgen. Oh, for that matter, I will give you six for it. Walpole. Ten. Lewis. I think Sir Patrick is morally entitled to it, as he sat for it. May I send it to your house, Sir Patrick, for twelve guineas? Sir Patrick. Twelve guineas? Not if you were president of the Royal Academy, young man. He gives him back the drawing decisively and turns away, taking up his hat. Lewis to B. B. Would you like to take it at twelve, Sir Ralph? B. B. Coming between Lewis and Walpole, twelve guineas? Thank you, I'll take it at that. He takes it and presents it to Sir Patrick. Accept it from me, Patty, and may you long be spared to contemplate it. Sir Patrick. Thank you. He puts the drawing into his hat. B. B. I needn't settle with you now, Mr. Dubat. My fees will come to more than that. He also retrieves his hat. Lewis, indignantly, well, of all the mean, words fail him. I'd let myself be shot sooner than do a thing like that. I consider you've stolen that drawing. Sir Patrick, drilly, so we've converted you to a belief in morality after all, eh? Lewis. Yeah. To Walpole, I'll do another one for you, Walpole, if you'll let me have the ten you promised. Walpole. Very good. I'll pay on delivery. Lewis. Oh. What do you take me for? Have you no confidence in my honor? Walpole. None whatever. Lewis. Oh well, of course, if you feel that way, you can't help it. Before you go, Sir Patrick, let me fetch Jennifer. I know she'd like to see you, if you don't mind. He goes to the inner door. And now, before she comes in, one word. You've all been talking here pretty freely about me, in my own house too. I don't mind that. I'm a man and can take care of myself. But when Jennifer comes in, Please remember that she's a lady, and that you are supposed to be gentlemen. He goes out. Walpole. Well, he gives the situation up as indescribable, and goes for his hat. Ridgen. Damn his impudence. B. B. I shouldn't be at all surprised to learn that he's well-connected. Whenever I meet dignity and self-possession without any discoverable basis, I diagnose good family. Ridgen. Diagnose artistic genius, B. B. That's what saves his self-respect. Sir Patrick. The world is made like that. The decent fellows are always being lectured and put out of countenance by the snobs. B. B. Altogether refusing to accept this, I am not out of countenance. I should like, by Jupiter, to see the man who could put me out of countenance. Jennifer comes in. Ah, Mrs. 
Dubdat. And how are we today? Mrs. Dubdat shaking hands with him. Thank you all so much for coming. She shakes Walpole's hand. Thank you, Sir Patrick. She shakes Sir Patrick's. Oh, life has been worth living since I have known you. Since Richmond I have not known a moment's fear. And it used to be nothing but fear. Won't you sit down and tell me the result of the consultation? Walpole. I'll go, if you don't mind, Mrs. Dubdat. I have an appointment. Before I go, let me say that I am quite agreed with my colleagues here as to the character of the case. As to the cause and the remedy, that's not my business. I'm only a surgeon, and these gentlemen are physicians and will advise you. I may have my own views. In fact, I have them, and they are perfectly well known to my colleagues. If I am needed, and needed I shall be finally, they know where to find me, and I am always at your service. So for today, goodbye. He goes out, leaving Jennifer much puzzled by his unexpected withdrawal and formal manner. Sir Patrick. I also will ask you to excuse me, Mrs. Dubdat. Ridgen anxiously, are you going? Sir Patrick. Yes, I can be of no use here, and I must be getting back. As you know, ma'am, I'm not in practice now, and I shall not be in charge of the case. It rests between Sir Colenso Ridgen and Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. They know my opinion. Good afternoon to you, ma'am. He bows and makes for the door. Mrs. Dubdat, detaining him, there's nothing wrong, is there? You don't think Lewis is worse, do you? Sir Patrick. No, he's not worse. Just the same as at Richmond. Mrs. Dubdat. Oh, thank you, you frighten me. Excuse me. Sir Patrick. Don't mention it, ma'am. He goes out. B. B. Now, Mrs. Dubdat, if I am to take the patient in hand. Mrs. Dubdat, apprehensively, with a glance at Ridgen, you. But I thought that Sir Colenso. B. B. Beaming with the conviction that he is giving her a most gratifying surprise, my dear lady, your husband shall have me. Mrs. Dubdat. But. B. B. Not a word. It is a pleasure to me, for your sake. Sir Colenso Ridgen will be in his proper place, in the bacteriological laboratory. I shall be in my proper place, at the bedside. Your husband shall be treated exactly as if he were a member of the royal family. Mrs. Dubdat, uneasy, again is about to protest. No gratitude. It would embarrass me, I assure you. Now may I ask whether you are particularly tied to these apartments? Of course, the motor has annihilated distance but I confess that if you were rather nearer to me, it would be a little more convenient. Mrs. Dubat. You see, this studio and flat are self-contained. I have suffered so much in lodgings. The servants are so frightfully dishonest. B. B. Ah. Are they? Are they? Dear me. Mrs. Dubat. I was never accustomed to lock things up. And I miss so many small sums. At last a dreadful thing happened. I missed a five-pound note. It was traced to the housemaid, and she actually said Lewis had given it to her. And he wouldn't let me do anything. He is so sensitive that these things drive him mad. B. B. Ah. H. M. Ha. Yes. Say no more, Mrs. Do that. You shall not move. If the mountain will not come to Muhammad, Muhammad must come to the mountain. Now I must be off. I will write and make an appointment. We shall begin stimulating the phagocytes on, on, 
probably on Tuesday next, but I will let you know. Depend on me, don't fret, eat regularly, sleep well, keep your spirits up, keep the patient cheerful, hope for the best, no tonic like a charming woman, no medicine like cheerfulness, no resource like science, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Having shaken hands, she being too overwhelmed to speak, he goes out, stopping to say to Rigen, on Tuesday morning send me down a tube of some really stiff antitoxin. Any kind will do. Don't forget. Goodbye, Collie. He goes out. Rigen. You look quite discouraged again. She is almost in tears. What's the matter? Are you disappointed? Mrs. Debat. I know I ought to be very grateful. Believe me, I am very grateful. But, but... Rigen. Well? Mrs. Debat. I had set my heart your curing Lewis. Rigen. Well, Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. Mrs. Debat. Yes, I know, I know. It is a great privilege to have him. But oh, I wish it had been you. I know it's unreasonable. I can't explain. But I had such a strong instinct that you would cure him. I don't. I can't feel the same about Sir Ralph. You promised me. Why did you give Lewis up? Ridgen. I explained to you. I cannot take another case. Mrs. Debat. But at Richmond? Ridgen. At Richmond I thought I could make room for one more case. But my old friend D.R. Blenkinsop claimed that place. His lung is attacked. Mrs. Dubdat, attaching no importance whatever to Blenkinsop, do you mean that elderly man, that rather? Ridgen sternly, I mean the gentleman that dined with us, an excellent and honest man, whose life is as valuable as anyone else's. I have arranged that I shall take his case, and that Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington shall take Mr. Dubdat's. Mrs. Dubdat, turning indignantly on him, I see what it is. Oh! It is envious, mean, cruel. And I thought that you would be above such a thing. Ridgen. What do you mean? Mrs. Debat. Oh, do you think I don't know? Do you think it has never happened before? Why does everybody turn against him? Can you not forgive him for being superior to you? For being cleverer? For being braver? For being a great artist? Ridgen. Yes, I can forgive him for all that. Mrs. Debat. Well, have you anything to say against him? I have challenged everyone who has turned against him, challenged them face to face to tell me any wrong thing he has done, any ignoble thought he has uttered. They have always confessed that they could not tell me one. I challenge you now. What do you accuse him of? Ridgen. I am like all the rest. Face to face, I cannot tell you one thing against him. Mrs. Debat, not satisfied but your manner is changed, and you have broken your promise to me to make room for him as your patient. Ridgen. I think you are a little unreasonable. You have had the very best medical advice in London for him, and his case has been taken in hand by a leader of the profession. Surely. Mrs. Debat. Oh, it is so cruel to keep telling me that. It seems all right, and it puts me in the wrong. But I am not in the wrong. I have faith in you and I have no faith in the others. We have seen so many doctors. I have come to know at last when they are only talking and can do nothing. It is different with you. I feel that you know. You must listen to me, doctor. With sudden misgiving, 
Am I offending you by calling you doctor instead of remembering your title? Rigen. Nonsense. I am a doctor. But mind you, don't call Walpole one. Mrs. Dubat. I don't care about Mr. Walpole. It is you who must befriend me. Oh, will you please sit down and listen to me just for a few minutes? He assents with a grave inclination and sits on the sofa. She sits on the easel chair, thank you. I won't keep you long, but I must tell you the whole truth. Listen. I know Lewis as nobody else in the world knows him or ever can know him. I am his wife. I know he has little faults, impatiences, sensitivenesses, even little selfishnesses that are too trivial for him to notice. I know that he sometimes shocks people about money because he is so utterly above it and can't understand the value ordinary people set on it. Tell me, did he, did he borrow any money from you? Ridgen. He asked me for some once. Mrs. Dubdat, tears again in her eyes. Oh, I am so sorry, so sorry. But he will never do it again. I pledge you my word for that. He has given me his promise, here in this room just before you came, and he is incapable of breaking his word. That was his only real weakness, and now it is conquered and done with forever. Ridgen. Was that really his only weakness? Mrs. Dubat. He is perhaps sometimes weak about women, because they adore him so, and are always laying traps for him. And of course when he says he doesn't believe in morality, ordinary pious people think he must be wicked. You can understand, can't you, how all this starts a great deal of gossip about him, and gets repeated until even good friends get set against him? Ridgen. Yes, I understand. Mrs. Debat. Oh, if you only knew the other side of him as I do. Do you know, doctor, that if Lewis dishonored himself by a really bad action, I should kill myself? Ridgen. Come. Don't exaggerate. Mrs. Debat. I should. You don't understand that, you East Country people. Ridgen. You did not see much of the world in Cornwall, did you? Mrs. Dubdat, naively, oh yes. I saw a great deal every day of the beauty of the world, more than you ever see here in London. But I saw very few people, if that is what you mean. I was an only child. Ridgen. That explains a good deal. Mrs. Dubat. I had a great many dreams, but at last they all came to one dream. Ridgen, with half a sigh, yes, the usual dream. Mrs. Dubdat, surprised, is it usual? Ridgen, as I guess. You haven't yet told me what it was. Mrs. Dubdat, I didn't want to waste myself. I could do nothing myself, but I had a little property and I could help with it. I had even a little beauty. Don't think me vain for knowing it. I always had a terrible struggle with poverty and neglect at first. My dream was to save one of them from that and bring some charm and happiness into his life. I prayed heaven to send me one. I firmly believe that Lewis was guided to me in answer to my prayer. He was no more like the other men I had met than the Thames embankment is like our Cornish coasts. He saw everything that I saw, and drew it for me. He understood everything. He came to me like a child. Only fancy, doctor, he never even wanted to marry me. He never thought of the things other men think of. I had to propose it myself. Then he said he had no money. When I told him I had some, he said, Oh, all right. Just like a boy. He is still like that, quite unspoiled, a man in his thoughts, 
a great poet and artist in his dreams, and a child in his ways. I gave him myself and all I had that he might grow to his full height with plenty of sunshine. If I lost faith in him, it would mean the wreck and failure of my life. I should go back to Cornwall and die. I could show you the very cliff I should jump off. You must cure him. You must make him quite well again for me. I know that you can do it, and that nobody else can. I implore you not to refuse what I am going to ask you to do. Take Lewis yourself, and let Sir Ralph cure D.R. Blenkinsop. Ridgeon slowly, Mrs. Dubdat. Do you really believe in my knowledge and skill as you say you do? Mrs. Dubdat. Absolutely. I do not give my trust by halves. Ridgeon. I know that. Well, I am going to test you, hard. Will you believe me when I tell you that I understand what you have just told me, that I have no desire but to serve you in the most faithful friendship, and that your hero must be preserved to you? Mrs. Debat. Oh, forgive me. Forgive what I said. You will preserve him to me. Ridgeon. At all hazards. She kisses his hand. He rises hastily. No, you have not heard the rest. She rises too. You must believe me when I tell you that the one chance of preserving the hero lies in Lewis being in the care of Sir Ralph. Mrs. Debat firmly you say so. I have no more doubt. I believe you. Thank you. Ridgeon. Goodbye. She takes his hand. I hope this will be a lasting friendship. Mrs. Debat. It will. My friendships end only with death. Ridgeon. Death ends everything, doesn't it? Goodbye. With a sigh and a look of pity at her which she does not understand, he goes. Act 4. The Studio. The easel is pushed back to the wall. Cardinal Death, holding his scythe and hourglass like a scepter and globe, sits on the throne. On the hat stand hang the hats of Sir Patrick and Bloomfield Bonington. Walpole, just come in, is hanging up his beside them. There is a knock. He opens the door and finds Ridgen there. Walpole. Hello, Ridgen. They come into the middle of the room together, taking off their gloves. Ridgen. What's the matter? Have you been sent for, too? Walpole. We've all been sent for. Eve only just come. I haven't seen him yet. The charwoman says that old Patty Cullen has been here with B. B. For the last half hour. Sir Patrick, with bad news in his face, enters from the inner room. Well, what's up? Sir Patrick. Go in and see. B. B. Is in there with him. Walpole goes. Ridgen is about to follow him, but Sir Patrick stops him with a look. Ridgen. What has happened? Sir Patrick. Do you remember Jane Marsh's arm? Ridgen. Is that what's happened? Sir Patrick. That's what's happened. His lung has gone like Jane's arm. I never saw such a case. He has got through three months galloping consumption in three days. Ridgen. B. B. Got in on the negative phase. Sir Patrick. Negative or positive, the lad's done for. He won't last out the afternoon. He'll go suddenly. I've often seen it. Ridgen. So long as he goes before his wife finds him out, I don't care. I fully expected this. Sir Patrick, drilly, it's a little hard on a lad to be killed because his wife has too high an opinion of him. Fortunately, few of us are in any danger of that. 
Sir Ralph comes from the inner room and hastens between them, humanely concerned, but professionally elate and communicative. B. B. Ah, here you are, Ridgen. Patty's told you, of course. Ridgen. Yes. B. B. It's an enormously interesting case. You know, Collie, by Jupiter, if I didn't know as a matter of scientific fact that I'd been stimulating the phagocytes, I should say I'd been stimulating the other things. What is the explanation of it, Sir Patrick? How do you account for it, Ridgen? Have we overstimulated the phagocytes? Have they not only eaten up the bacilli, but attacked and destroyed the red corpuscles as well? A possibility suggested by the patient's pallor. Nay, have they finally begun to prey on the lungs themselves? Or on one another? I shall write a paper about this case. Walpole comes back, very serious, even shocked. He comes between B, B, and Ridgen. Walpole. Phew. B, B, you've done it this time. B, B, what do you mean? Walpole. Killed him. The worst case of neglected blood poisoning I ever saw. It's too late now to do anything. He'd die under the anesthetic. B. B. Offended, killed. Really, Walpole, if your monomania were not well known, I should take such an expression very seriously. Sir Patrick. Come, come. When you've both killed as many people as I have in my time, you'll feel humble enough about it. Come and look at him, Collie. Ridgen and Sir Patrick go into the inner room. Walpole. I apologize, B. B. But it's blood poisoning. B. B. Recovering his irresistible good nature, my dear Walpole, everything is blood poisoning. But upon my soul, I shall not use any of that stuff of Ridgen's again. What made me so sensitive about what you said just now is that, strictly between ourselves, Ridgen cooked our young friend's goose. Jennifer, worried and distressed, but always gentle, comes between them from the inner room. She wears a nurse's apron. Mrs. Dubdat. Sir Ralph, what am I to do? That man who insisted on seeing me, and sent in word that business was important to Lewis, is a newspaper man. A paragraph appeared in the paper this morning saying that Lewis is seriously ill, and this man wants to interview him about it. How can people be so brutally callous? Walpole, moving vengefully towards the door, you just leave me to deal with him. Mrs. Dubdat stopping him. But Lewis insists on seeing him. He almost began to cry about it. And he says he can't bear his room any longer. He says he wants to, she struggles with a sob, to die in his studio. Sir Patrick says let him have his way. It can do no harm. What shall we do? B.B. Encouragingly, why, follow Sir Patrick's excellent advice, of course. As he says, it can do him no harm. And it will no doubt do him good, a great deal of good. He will be much the better for it. Mrs. Dubdat, a little cheered, will you bring the man up here, Mr. Walpole, and tell him that he may see Lewis, but that he mustn't exhaust him by talking? Walpole nods and goes out by the outer door. Sir Ralph, don't be angry with me, but Lewis will die if he stays here. I must take him to Cornwall. He will recover there. B. B. Brightening wonderfully, as if Dubdat were already saved Cornwall. The very place for him. Wonderful for the lungs. Stupid of me not to think of it before. You are his best physician after all, dear lady. An inspiration. Cornwall, of course, yes, yes, yes. Mrs. Dubdat, 
comforted and touched, you are so kind, Sir Ralph. But don't give me much or I shall cry, and Lewis can't bear that. B. B. Gently putting his protecting arm round her shoulders, then let us come back to him and help to carry him in. Cornwall. Of course, of course. The very thing. They go together into the bedroom. Walpole returns with the newspaper man, a cheerful, affable young man who is disabled for ordinary business pursuits by a congenital erroneousness which renders him incapable of describing accurately anything he sees, or understanding or reporting accurately anything he hears. As the only employment in which these defects do not matter is journalism for a newspaper, not having to act on its description and reports, but only to sell them to idly curious people, has nothing but honor to lose by inaccuracy and unveracity, he has perforce become a journalist, and has to keep up an air of high spirits through a daily struggle with his own illiteracy and the precariousness of his employment. He has a notebook, and occasionally attempts to make a note, but as he cannot write shorthand, and does not write with ease in any hand, he generally gives it up as a bad job before he succeeds in finishing a sentence. The newspaper man, looking round and making indecisive attempts at notes, this is the studio, I suppose. Walpole. Yes. The newspaper man, wittily, where he has his models, eh. Walpole, grimly irresponsive, no doubt. The newspaper man. Cubicle, you said it was? Walpole. Yes, tubercle. The newspaper man. Which way do you spell it? Is it C-U-B-I-C-L or C-L-E? Walpole. Tubercle, man, not cubicle. Spelling it for him, T-U-B-R-C-L-E. The newspaper man. Oh. Tubercle. Some disease, I suppose? I thought he had consumption. Are you one of the family or the doctor? Walpole. I'm either one nor the other. I am Mr. Cutler Walpole. Put that down. Then put down Sir Colenso Ridgeon. The newspaper man. Pigeon? Walpole. Ridgeon. Contemptuously snatching his book, here, you'd better let me write the names down for you. You're sure to get them wrong. That comes of belonging to an illiterate profession, with no qualifications and no public register. He writes the particulars. The newspaper man. Oh, I say. You have got your knife into us, haven't you? Walpole, vindicatively, I wish I had. I'd make a better man of you. Now attend. Shewing him the book, these are the names of the three doctors. This is the patient. This is the address. This is the name of the disease. He shuts the book with a snap which makes the journalist blink, and returns it to him. Mr. Dubdat will be brought in here presently. He wants to see you because he doesn't know how bad he is. We'll allow you to wait a few minutes to humor him, but if you talk to him, out you go. He may die at any moment. The newspaper man, interested, is he as bad as that? I say, I am in luck today. Would you mind letting me photograph you? He produces a camera. Could you have a lancet or something in your hand? Walpole. Put it up. If you want my photograph you can get it in Baker Street in any of the series of celebrities. The newspaper man. But they'll want to be paid. If you wouldn't mind fingering the camera? Walpole. I would. Put it up, I tell you. Sit down there and be quiet. The newspaper man quickly sits down on the piano stool as Dubdat, in an invalid's chair, is wheeled in by Mrs. Dubdat and Sir Ralph. 
They placed the chair between the dais and the sofa, where the easel stood before. Lewis is not changed as a robust man would be, and he is not scared. His eyes look larger, and he is so weak physically that he can hardly move, lying on his cushions, with complete languor. But his mind is active, it is making the most of his condition, finding voluptuousness in languor and drama in death. They are all impressed, in spite of themselves, except Rigen, who is implacable. B.B. is entirely sympathetic and forgiving. Ridgen follows the chair with a tray of milk and stimulants. Sir Patrick, who accompanies him, takes the tea table from the corner and places it behind the chair for the tray. B. B. takes the easel chair and places it for Jennifer at Dubdat's side, next to Dais, from which the lay figure ogles the dying artist. B. B. then returns to Dubdat's left. Jennifer sits. Walpole sits down on the edge of the dais. Ridgen stands near him. Lewis, blissfully, that's happiness. To be in a studio. Happiness. Mrs. Debat. Yes, dear. Sir Patrick says you may stay here as long as you like. Lewis. Jennifer. Mrs. Debat. Yes, my darling. Lewis. Is the newspaper man here? The newspaper man, glibly, yes, Mr. Dubdat, I'm here, at your service. I represent the press. I thought you might like to let us have a few words about, about, er, well, a few words on your illness, and your plans for the season. Lewis. My plans for the season are very simple. I'm going to die. Mrs. Dubdat tortured Lewis, dearest. Lewis. My darling, I'm very weak and tired. Don't put on me the horrible strain of pretending that I don't know. Eve been lying there listening to the doctors, laughing to myself. They know. Dearest, don't cry. It makes you ugly, and I can't bear that. She dries her eyes and recovers herself with a proud effort. I want you to promise me something. Mrs. Debat. Yes, yes, you know I will. Imploringly, only my love, my love, don't talk, it will waste your strength. Lewis. No, it will only use it up. Ridgen, give me something to keep me going for a few minutes, one of your confounded antitoxins, if you don't mind. I have some things to say before I go. Ridgen, looking at Sir Patrick, I suppose it can do no harm? He pours out some spirit, and is about to add soda water when Sir Patrick corrects him. Sir Patrick. In milk. Don't set him coughing. Lewis, after drinking, Jennifer. Mrs. Debat. Yes, dear. Lewis. If there's one thing I hate more than another, it's a widow. Promise me that you'll never be a widow. Mrs. Debat. My dear, what do you mean? Lewis. I want you to look beautiful. I want people to see in your eyes that you were married to me. The people in Italy used to point at Dante and say, There goes the man who has been in hell. I want them to point at you and say, There goes a woman who has been in heaven. It has been heaven, darling, hasn't it, sometimes? Mrs. Debat. Oh, yes, yes. Always, always. Lewis. If you wear black and cry, people will say, Look at that miserable woman. Her husband made her miserable. Mrs. Debat. No, never. You are the light and the blessing of my life. I never lived until I knew you. Lewis his eyes glistening, then you must always wear beautiful dresses and splendid magic jewels. 
Think of all the wonderful pictures I shall never paint. She wins a terrible victory over a sob. Well, you must be transfigured with all the beauty of those pictures. Men must get such dreams from seeing you as they never could get from any daubing with paints and brushes. Painters must paint you as they never painted any mortal woman before. There must be a great tradition of beauty, a great atmosphere of wonder and romance. That is what men must always think of when they think of me. That is the sort of immortality I want. You can make that for me, Jennifer. There are lots of things you don't understand that every woman in the street understands. But you can understand that, and do it as nobody else can. Promise me that immortality. Promise me you will not make a little hell of crepe and crying and undertaker's horrors and withering flowers and all that vulgar rubbish. Mrs. DeBat. I promise. But all that is far off, dear. You are to come to Cornwall with me and get well. Sir Ralph says so. Lewis. Poor old B. 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 Affected to tears, turns away and whispers to Sir Patrick, poor fellow. Brain going. Lewis. Sir Patrick's there, isn't he? Sir Patrick. Yes, yes. I'm here. Lewis. Sit down, won't you? It's a shame to keep you standing about. Sir Patrick. Yes, yes. Thank you. All right. Lewis. Jennifer. Mrs. DeBat. Yes, dear. Lewis, with a strange look of delight, do you remember the burning bush? Mrs. DeBat. Yes, yes. Oh, my dear, how it strains my heart to remember it now. Lewis. Does it? It fills me with joy. Tell them about it. Mrs. DeBat. It was nothing, only that once in my old Cornish home we lit the first fire of the winter, and when we looked through the window we saw the flames dancing in a bush in the garden. Lewis. Such a color. Garnet color. Waving like silk. Liquid lovely flame flowing up through the bay leaves, and not burning them. Well, I shall be a flame like that. I'm sorry to disappoint the poor little worms, but the last of me shall be the flame in the burning bush. Whenever you see the flame, Jennifer, that will be me. Promise me that I shall be burnt. Mrs. DeBat. Oh, if I might be with you, Louis. Louis. No, you must always be in the garden when the bush flames. You are my hold on the world. You are my immortality. Promise. Mrs. DeBat. I'm listening. I shall not forget. You know that I promise. Louis. Well, that's about all, except that you are to hang my pictures at the one-man show. I can trust your eye. You won't let anyone else touch them. Mrs. DeBat. You can trust me. Lewis. Then there's nothing more to worry about, is there? Give me some more of that milk. I'm fearfully tired, but if I stop talking I shan't begin again. Sir Ralph gives him a drink. He takes it and looks up quaintly. I say, B, B. Do you think anything would stop you talking? B. B. Almost a man. He confuses me with you, Patty. Poor fellow. Poor fellow. Lewis, musing, I used to be awfully afraid of death. But now it's come I have no fear, and I'm perfectly happy. Jennifer. Mrs. DeBat. Yes, dear? Lewis. I'll tell you a secret. I used to think that our marriage was all an affectation and that I'd break loose and run away some day. 
But now that I'm going to be broken loose whether I like it or not, I'm perfectly fond of you, and perfectly satisfied because I'm going to live as part of you and not as my troublesome self. Mrs. Dubdat, heartbroken, stay with me, Louis. Oh, don't leave me, dearest. Louis. Not that I'm selfish. With all my faults I don't think I've ever been really selfish. No artist can. Art is too large for that. You will marry again, Jennifer. Mrs. Debat. Oh, how can you, Louis? Louis, insisting childishly, yes, because people who have found marriage happy always marry again. Ah, I shan't be jealous. Slyly. But don't talk to the other fellow too much about me. He won't like it. Almost chuckling, I shall be your lover all the time, but it will be a secret from him. Poor devil. Sir Patrick. Come. You've talked enough. Try to rest a while. Lewis, wearily, yes, I'm fearfully tired, but I shall have a long rest presently. I have something to say to you fellows. You're all there, aren't you? I'm too weak to see anything but Jennifer's bosom. That promises rest. Ridgen. We are all here. Lewis, startled, that voice sounded devilish. Take care, Ridgen. My ears hear things that other people's can't. Eve been thinking, thinking. I'm cleverer than you imagine. Sir Patrick, whispering to Ridgen, you've got on his nerves, Collie. Slip out quietly. Ridgen, apart to Sir Patrick, would you deprive the dying actor of his audience? Lewis, his face lighting up faintly with mischievous glee, I heard that, Ridgen. That was good. Jennifer dear, be kind to Ridgen always, because he was the last man who amused me. Ridgen, relentless, was I? Lewis. But it's not true. It's you who are still on the stage. I'm halfway home already. Mrs. Dubdat to Ridgen, what did you say? Lewis, answering for him, nothing, dear. Only one of those little secrets that men keep among themselves. Well, all you chaps have thought pretty hard things of me, and said them. Be, be, quite overcome, no, no, Dubdat. Not at all. Lewis. Yes, you have. I know what you all think of me. Don't imagine I'm sore about it. I forgive you. Walpole, involuntarily, well, damn me. Ashamed, I beg your pardon. Lewis. That was old Walpole, I know. Don't grieve, Walpole. I'm perfectly happy. I'm not in pain. I don't want to live. Eve escaped from myself. I'm in heaven, immortal in the heart of my beautiful Jennifer. I'm not afraid, and not ashamed. Reflectively, puzzling it out for himself weakly, I know that in an accidental sort of way, struggling through the unreal part of life, I haven't always been able to live up to my ideal. But in my own real world I have never done anything wrong, never denied my faith, never been untrue to myself. Eve been threatened and blackmailed and insulted and starved. But Eve played the game. Eve fought the good fight. And now it's all over, there's an indescribable peace. He feebly folds his hands and utters his creed, I believe in Michelangelo, Velasquez, and Rembrandt, in the might of design, the mystery of color, the redemption of all things by beauty everlasting, and the message of art that has made these hands blessed. Amen. Amen. He closes his eyes and lies still. Mrs. Dubdat, breathless, Lewis, are you? Walpole rises and comes quickly to see whether he is dead. Lewis. Not yet, dear. 
Very nearly, but not yet. I should like to rest my head on your bosom. Only it would tire you. Mrs. DeBat. No, 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 darling. How could you tire me? She lifts him so that he lies on her bosom. Louis. That's good. That's real. Mrs. DeBat. Don't spare me, dear. Indeed, indeed you will not tire me. Lean on me with all your weight. Louis, with a sudden half-return of his normal strength and comfort, Ginny Gwinny, I think I shall recover after all. Sir Patrick looks significantly at Ridgen, mutely warning him that this is the end. Mrs. Dubdat, hopefully, yes, yes, you shall. Louis, because I suddenly want to sleep. Just an ordinary sleep. Mrs. Dubdat rocking him, yes, dear. Sleep. He seems to go to sleep. Walpole makes another movement. She protests. S.H., S.H., please don't disturb him. His lips move. What did you say, dear? In great distress, I can't listen without moving him. His lips move again. Walpole bends down and listens. Walpole. He wants to know is the newspaper man here. The newspaper man, excited, for he has been enjoying himself enormously, yes, Mr. Dubdat. Here I am. Walpole raises his hand warningly to silence him. Sir Ralph sits down quietly on the sofa and frankly buries his face in his handkerchief. Mrs. Dubdat, with great relief, oh that's right, dear, don't spare me, lean with all your weight on me. Now you are really resting. Sir Patrick quickly comes forward and feels Lewis's pulse, then takes him by the shoulders. Sir Patrick, let me put him back on the pillow, ma'am. He will be better so. Mrs. Dubdat piteously, oh no, please, please, doctor. He is not tiring me, and he will be so hurt when he wakes if he finds I have put him away. Sir Patrick. He will never wake again. He takes the body from her and replaces it in the chair. Ridgen, unmoved, lets down the back and makes a beer of it. Mrs. Dubdat, who has unexpectedly sprung to her feet and stands dry-eyed and stately, was that death? Walpole. Yes. Mrs. Dubdat, with complete dignity, will you wait for me a moment? I will come back. She goes out. Walpole. Ought we to follow her? Is she in her right senses? Sir Patrick, with quiet conviction. Yes. She's all right. Leave her alone. She'll come back. Ridgen callously, let us get this thing out of the way before she comes. B. B. Rising shocked, my dear collie. The poor lad. He died splendidly. Sir Patrick. I. That is how the wicked die. For there are no bands in their death. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. No matter. It's not for us to judge. He's in another world now. Walpole. Borrowing his first five-pound note there. Probably. Ridgen. I said the other day that the most tragic thing in the world is a sick doctor. I was wrong. The most tragic thing in the world is a man of genius who is not also a man of honor. Ridgen and Walpole wheeled the chair into the recess. The newspaper man, to Sir Ralph, I thought it shewed a very nice feeling, his being so particular about his wife going into proper mourning for him and making her promise never to marry again. B. B. Impressively, Mrs. Dubdad is not in a position to carry the interview any further. Neither are we. Sir Patrick. Good afternoon to you.
the newspaper man. Mrs. Dubdat said she was coming back. B. B. After you have gone. The newspaper man. Do you think she would give me a few words on how it feels to be a widow? Rather a good title for an article, isn't it? B. B. Young man, if you wait until Mrs. Dubdat comes back, you will be able to write an article on how it feels to be turned out of the house. The newspaper man, unconvinced, you think she'd rather not. B. B. Cutting him short, good day to you. Giving him a visiting card, mind you get my name correctly. Good day. The newspaper man. Good day. Thank you. Vaguely trying to read the card, Mr. B. B. No, not Mr. This is your hat, I think, giving it to him. Gloves? No, of course, no gloves. Good day to you. He edges him out at last, shuts the door on him, and returns to Sir Patrick as Ridgen and Walpole come back from the recess, Walpole crossing the room to the hat stand, and Ridgen coming between Sir Ralph and Sir Patrick. Poor fellow. Poor young fellow. How well he died. I feel a better man, really. Sir Patrick. When you're as old as I am, you'll know that it matters very little how a man dies. What matters is how he lives. Every fool that runs his nose against a bullet is a hero nowadays, because he dies for his country. Why don't he live for it to some purpose? B. B. No, please, Patty, don't be hard on the poor lad. Not now, not now. After all, was he so bad? He had only two failings, money and women. Well, let us be honest. Tell the truth, Patty. Don't be hypocritical, Ridgen. Throw off the mask, Walpole. Are these two matters so well arranged at present that a disregard of the usual arrangements indicates real depravity? Walpole. I don't mind his disregarding the usual arrangements. Confound the usual arrangements. To a man of science there beneath contempt both as to money and women. What I mind is his disregarding everything except his own pocket and his own fancy. He didn't disregard the usual arrangements when they paid him. Did he give us his pictures for nothing? Do you suppose he'd have hesitated to blackmail me if I'd compromised myself with his wife? Not he. Sir Patrick. Don't waste your time wrangling over him. A blackguard's a blackguard. An honest man's an honest man, and neither of them will ever be at a loss for a religion or a morality to prove that their ways are the right ways. It's the same with nations, the same with professions, the same all the world over and always will be. B. B. Ah, well, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Still, de mortuus nil nisi bonum. He died extremely well, remarkably well. He has set us an example. Let us endeavor to follow it rather than harp on the weaknesses that have perished with him. I think it is Shakespeare who says that the good that most men do lives after them. The evil lies interred with their bones. Yes, interred with their bones. Believe me, Patty, we are all mortal. It is the common lot, Ridgen. Say what you will, Walpole, nature's debt must be paid. If tis not today, twill be tomorrow. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. After life's fitful fever they sleep well. And like this insubstantial born from which no traveler returns. Leave not a rack behind. Walpole is about to speak, but B. B. Suddenly and vehemently proceeding, extinguishes him. Out, out, brief candle. For nothing canst thou to damnation add. The readiness is all. Walpole, gently, 
for B. B.S. feeling, absurdly expressed as it is, is too sincere and humane to be ridiculed. Yes, B. B. Death makes people go on like that. I don't know why it should, but it does. By the way, what are we going to do? Ought we to clear out? Or had we better wait and see whether Mrs. Dubdat will come back? Sir Patrick. I think we'd better go. We can tell the charwoman what to do. They take their hats and go to the door. Mrs. Dubdat, coming from the inner door wonderfully and beautifully dressed, and radiant, carrying a great piece of purple silk, handsomely embroidered, over her arm. I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting. Sir Patrick, amazed, all don't mention it, madam. B.B. Together, not at all, not at all. Ridgen, in a confused, by no means. Walpole, murmur, it doesn't matter in the least. Mrs. Dubdat coming to them, I felt that I must shake hands with his friends once before we part today. We have shared together a great privilege and a great happiness. I don't think we can ever think of ourselves ordinary people again. We have had a wonderful experience, and that gives us a common faith, a common ideal, that nobody else can quite have. Life will always be beautiful to us. Death will always be beautiful to us. May we shake hands on that? Sir Patrick, shaking hands, remember, all letters had better be left to your solicitor. Let him open everything and settle everything. That's the law you know. Mrs. Debat. Oh, thank you, I didn't know. Sir Patrick goes. Walpole. Goodbye. I blame myself, I should have insisted on operating. He goes. B.B. I will send the proper people. They will know what to do. You shall have no trouble. Goodbye, my dear lady. He goes. Ridgen. Goodbye. He offers his hand. Mrs. Dubdat, drawing back with gentle majesty, I said his friends, Sir Colenso. He bows and goes. She unfolds the great piece of silk and goes into the recess to cover her dead. Act 5. One of the smaller Bond Street picture galleries. The entrance is from a picture shop. Nearly in the middle of the gallery there is a writing table, at which the secretary, fashionably dressed, sits with his back to the entrance, correcting catalogue proofs. Some copies of a new book are on the desk, also the secretary's shining hat and a couple of magnifying glasses. At the side, on his left, a little behind him, is a small door marked private. Near the same side is a cushioned bench parallel to the walls which are covered with Dubdat's works. Two screens, also covered with drawings, stand near the corners right and left of the entrance. Jennifer, beautifully dressed and apparently very happy and prosperous, comes into the gallery through the private door. Jennifer. Have the catalogues come yet, Mr. Danby? The secretary. Not yet. Jennifer. What a shame. It's a quarter past. The private view will begin in less than half an hour. The secretary. I think I'd better run over to the printers to hurry them up. Jennifer. Oh, if you would be so good, Mr. Danby. I'll take your place while you're away. The secretary. If anyone should come before the time, don't take any notice. The commissionaire won't let anyone through unless he knows him. We have a few people who like to come before the crowd, people who really buy, and of course we're glad to see them. Have you seen the notices in brush and crayon and in the easel? Jennifer, indignantly, yes, most disgraceful. They write quite patronizingly, as if they were Mr. Dubdat's superiors. 
After all the cigars and sandwiches they had from us on the press day, and all they drank, I really think it is infamous that they should write like that. I hope you have not sent them tickets for today. The secretary. Oh, they won't come again. There's no lunch today. The advance copies of your book have come. He indicates the new books. Jennifer, pouncing on a copy, wildly excited, give it to me. Oh, excuse me a moment. She runs away with it through the private door. The secretary takes a mirror from his drawer and smartens himself before going out. Ridgen comes in. Ridgen. Good morning. May I look round, as well, before the door is open? The secretary. Certainly, Sir Colenso. I'm sorry catalogues have not come. I'm just going to see about them. Hayrace my own list, if you don't mind. Ridgen. Thanks. What's this? He takes up one of the new books. The secretary. That's just come in. An advance copy of Mrs. Dubdat's life of her late husband. Ridgen, reading the title, The Story of a King by His Wife. He looks at the portrait frontis. Ay, there he is. You knew him here, I suppose? The secretary. Oh, we knew him. Better than she did, Sir Colenso, in some ways, perhaps. Ridgen. So did I. They look significantly at one another. I'll take a look round. The secretary puts on the shining hat and goes out. Ridgen begins looking at the pictures. Presently he comes back to the table for a magnifying glass and scrutinizes the drawing very closely. He sighs, shakes his head, as if constrained to admit the extraordinary fascination and merit of the work, then marks the secretary's list. Proceeding with his survey, he disappears behind the screen. Jennifer comes back with her book. A look round satisfies her that she is alone. She seats herself at the table and admires the memoir, her first printed book, to her heart's content. Ridgen reappears, face to the wall, scrutinizing the drawings. After using his glass again, he steps back to get a more distant view of one of the larger pictures. She hastily closes the book at the sound, looks round, recognizes him, and stares, petrified. He takes a further step back which brings him nearer to her. Ridgen, shaking his head as before, ejaculates, clever brute. She flushes as though he had struck her. He turns to put the glass down on the desk and finds himself face to face with her intent gaze. I beg your pardon. I thought I was alone. Jennifer, controlling herself and speaking steadily and meaningly, I am glad we have met, Sir Colenso Ridgen. I met D.R. Blenkinsop yesterday. I congratulate you on a wonderful cure. Ridgen can find no words, makes an embarrassed gesture of assent after a moment's silence, and puts down the glass and the secretary's list on the table. Jennifer. He looked the picture of health and strength and prosperity. She looks for a moment at the walls, contrasting Blenkinsop's fortune with the artist's fate. Ridgen, in low tones still embarrassed, he has been fortunate. Jennifer. Very fortunate. His life has been spared. Ridgen. I mean that he has been made a medical officer of health. He cured the chairman of the borough council very successfully. Jennifer. With your medicines? Ridgen. No. I believe it was with a pound of ripe green gauges. Jennifer, with deep gravity, funny. Ridgen. Yes. 
Life does not cease to be funny when people die any more than it ceases to be serious when people laugh. Jennifer. D.R. Blinkensop said one very strange thing to me. Ridgen. What was that? Jennifer. He said that private practice in medicine ought to be put down by law. When I asked him why, he said that private doctors were ignorant licensed murderers. Ridgen. That is what the public doctor always thinks of the private doctor. Well, Blinkensop ought to know. He was a private doctor long enough himself. Come. You have talked at me long enough. Talk to me. You have something to reproach me with. There is reproach in your face, in your voice. You are full of it. Out with it. Jennifer. It is too late for reproaches now. When I turned and saw you just now, I wondered how you could come here coolly to look at his pictures. You answered the question. To you, he was only a clever brute. Ridgen quivering, oh don't. You know I did not know you were here. Jennifer, raising her head a little with a quite gentle impulse of pride, you think it only mattered because I heard it. As if it could touch me, or touch him. Don't you see that what is really dreadful is that to you living things have no souls? Ridgen, with a skeptical shrug, the soul is an organ I have not come across in the course of my anatomical work. Jennifer. You know you would not dare to say such a silly thing as that to anybody but a woman whose mind you despise. If you dissected me you could not find my conscience. Do you think I have got none? Ridgen. I have met people who had none. Jennifer. Clever brutes? Do you know, doctor, that some of the dearest and most faithful friends I ever had were only brutes? You would have vivisected them. The dearest and greatest of all my friends had a sort of beauty and affectionateness that only animals have. I hope you may never feel what I felt when I had to put him into the hands of men who defend the torture of animals because they are only brutes. Ridgen. Well, did you find us so very cruel, after all? They tell me that though you have dropped me, you stay for weeks with the Bloomfield Bonington's and the Walpoles. I think it must be true, because they never mention you to me now. Jennifer. The animals in Sir Ralph's house are like spoiled children. When Mr. Walpole had to take a splinter out of the mastiff's paw, I had to hold the poor dog myself, and Mr. Walpole had to turn Sir Ralph out of the room. And Mrs. Walpole has to tell the gardener not to kill wasps when Mr. Walpole is looking. But there are doctors who are naturally cruel, and there are others who get used to cruelty and are callous about it. They blind themselves to the souls of animals, and that blinds them to the souls of men and women. You made a dreadful mistake about Lewis, but you would not have made it if you had not trained yourself to make the same mistake about dogs. You saw nothing in them but dumb brutes, and so you could see nothing in him but a clever brute. Ridgen, with sudden resolution, I made no mistake whatever about him. Jennifer. Oh, doctor. Ridgen, obstinately, I made no mistake whatever about him. Jennifer. Have you forgotten that he died? Ridgen, with a sweep of his hand towards the pictures, he is not dead. He is there. Taking up the book, and there. Jennifer, springing up with blazing eyes, put that down. How dare you touch it? Ridgen, amazed at the fierceness of the outburst, puts it down with a deprecatory shrug. She takes it up and looks at it as if he had profaned a relic. Ridgen, I am very sorry. I see I had better go. Jennifer, putting the book down, I beg your pardon. I forgot myself. 
But it is not yet, it is a private copy. Ridgeon. But for me it would have been a very different book. Jennifer. But for you it would have been a longer one. Ridgeon. You know then that I killed him? Jennifer, suddenly moved and softened, Oh, doctor, if you acknowledge that, if you have confessed it to yourself, if you realize what you have done, then there is forgiveness. I trusted in your strength instinctively at first. Then I thought I had mistaken callousness for strength. Can you blame me? But if it was really strength, if it was only such a mistake as we all make sometimes, it will make me so happy to be friends with you again. Ridgen. I tell you I made no mistake. I cured Blenkinsop. Was there any mistake there? Jennifer. He recovered. Oh, don't be foolishly proud, doctor. Confess to a failure, and save our friendship. Remember, Sir Ralph gave Lewis your medicine, and it made him worse. Ridgen. I can't be your friend on false pretenses. Something has got me by the throat. The truth must come out. I used that medicine myself on Blenkinsop. It did not make him worse. It is a dangerous medicine. It cured Blenkinsop. It killed Louis Dubdat. When I handle it, it cures. When another man handles it, it kills sometimes. Jennifer, naively, not yet taking it all in, then why did you let Sir Ralph give it to Louis? Ridgen, I'm going to tell you. I did it because I was in love with you. Jennifer, innocently surprised, and lo, you. Elderly man. Ridgen, thunderstruck, raising his fists to heaven, Dubdat, thou art avenged. He drops his hands and collapses on the bench. I never thought of that. I suppose I appear to you a ridiculous old fogey. Jennifer. But surely, I did not mean to offend you, indeed, but you must be at least twenty years older than I am. Ridgen. Oh, quite. More, perhaps. In twenty years you will understand how little difference that makes. Jennifer. But even so, how could you think that I, his wife, could ever think of you? Ridgen, stopping her with a nervous waving of his fingers, yes, 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 I quite understand, you needn't rub it in. Jennifer. But, oh, it is only dawning on me now, I was so surprised at first, do you dare to tell me that it was to gratify a miserable jealousy that you deliberately, oh, oh, you murdered him. Ridgen. I think I did. It really comes to that. Thou shalt not kill, but needst not strive. Officiously to keep alive. I suppose, yes, I killed him. Jennifer. And you tell me that? To my face. Callously. You are not afraid. Ridgen. I am a doctor. I have nothing to fear. It is not an indictable offense to call and be. Be. Perhaps it ought to be. But it isn't. Jennifer. I did not mean that. I meant afraid of my taking the law into my own hands and killing you. Ridgen. I am so hopelessly idiotic about you that I should not mind it a bit. You would always remember me if you did that. Jennifer. I shall remember you always as a little man who tried to kill a great one. Ridgen. Pardon me. I succeeded. Jennifer. With quiet conviction, no. Doctors think they hold the keys of life and death, but it is not their will that is fulfilled. I don't believe you made any difference at all. Ridgen. Perhaps not. But I intended to. Jennifer, looking at him amazedly, not without pity, 
and you tried to destroy that wonderful and beautiful life merely because you grudged him a woman whom you could never have expected to care for you. Rijin, who kissed my hands, who believed in me, who told me her friendship lasted until death. Jennifer, and whom you were betraying. Rijin, no, whom I was saving. Jennifer, gently pray, doctor, from what? Rijin, from making a terrible discovery. From having your life laid waste. Jennifer. How? Rijin. No matter. I have saved you. I have been the best friend you ever had. You are happy. You are well. His works are an imperishable joy and pride for you. Jennifer. And you think that is your doing. Oh, doctor, doctor. Sir Patrick is right. You do think you are a little god. How can you be so silly? You did not paint those pictures which are my imperishable joy and pride. You did not speak the words that will always be heavenly music in my ears. I listen to them now whenever I am tired or sad. That is why I am always happy. Rijin. Yes, now that he is dead. Were you always happy when he was alive? Jennifer, wounded, oh, you are cruel, cruel. When he was alive I did not know the greatness of my blessing. I worried meanly about little things. I was unkind to him. I was unworthy of him. Rijin, laughing bitterly, ha. Jennifer. Don't insult me, don't blaspheme. She snatches up the book and presses it to her heart in a paroxysm of remorse, exclaiming, Oh, my king of men. Rijin. King of men. Oh, this is too monstrous, too grotesque. We cruel doctors have kept the secret from you faithfully. But it is like all secrets. It will not keep itself. The buried truth germinates and breaks through to the light. Jennifer. What truth? Rijin. What truth? Why, that Louis Dubdat, king of men, was the most entire and perfect scoundrel, the most miraculously mean rascal, the most callously selfish blaggard that ever made a wife miserable. Jennifer, unshaken, calm and lovely, he made his wife the happiest woman in the world, doctor. Rijin. No. By all that's true on earth, he made his widow the happiest woman in the world, but it was I who made her a widow, and her happiness is my justification and my reward. Now you know what I did and what I thought of him. Be as angry with me as you like, at least you know me as I really am. If you ever come to care for an elderly man, you will know what you are caring for. Jennifer, kind and quiet, I am not angry with you any more, Sir Colenso. I knew quite well that you did not like Lewis, but it is not your fault. You don't understand, that is all. You never could have believed in him. It is just like you're not believing in my religion. It is a sort of sixth sense that you have not got. And, with a gentle reassuring movement towards him, don't think that you have shocked me so dreadfully. I know quite well what you mean by his selfishness. He sacrificed everything for his art. In a certain sense he had even to sacrifice everybody. Rijin. Everybody except himself. By keeping that back he lost the right to sacrifice you, and gave me the right to sacrifice him. Which I did. Jennifer shaking her head, pitying his error, he was one of the men who know what women know, that self-sacrifice is vain and cowardly. Rijin. Yes, when the sacrifice is rejected and thrown away not when it becomes the food of Godhead. Jennifer. I don't understand that. And I can't argue with you. 
You are clever enough to puzzle me, but not to shake me. You are so utterly, so wildly wrong, so incapable of appreciating Lewis. Ridgeon. Oh. Taking up the secretary's list, I have marked five pictures as sold to me. Jennifer. They will not be sold to you. Lewis's creditors insisted on selling them, but this is my birthday, and they were all bought in for me this morning by my husband. Ridgeon. By whom? Jennifer. By my husband. Ridgeon, gabbling and stuttering, what husband? Whose husband? Which husband? Whom? How? What? Do you mean to say that you have married again? Jennifer. Do you forget that Lewis disliked widows, and that people who have married happily once always marry again? The secretary returns with a pile of catalogues. The secretary. Just got the first batch of catalogues in time. The doors are open. Jennifer, to Ridgen, politely, so glad you like the pictures, Sir Colenso. Good morning. Ridgen. Good morning. He goes towards the door, hesitates, turns to say something more, gives it up as a bad job, and goes.